Welcome in, my friends. GameCritics.com podcast. My name is Tim Spath. It's been a little while. Great to be back with you and great to be back with my co-hosts. Say hello to Richard Nyack. Good evening, Captain. Good evening. Mike Susky is here. Hello, Mike. Hello, friends. And Dan Weisenberger is here. Hi, Dan. Great to be here as always. It is crazy to think that the last time we got together was a full year ago. Then we were talking about the best games of 2017. Tonight, we are talking about the best games of 2018. And to everybody listening, let me say this. Please don't panic. Nobody panic, but change is here. We are, I know, don't panic. Mike, don't panic. (laughs) We are uh, retiring at least temporarily, our normal uh, award show format. And we have done 10 of those for 10 straight years. And those shows, as you guys well know, took months and months of planning. Uh, They always paid off. We had like 3 million downloads a show or something like that. But um, this year, we're trying something different. We are offering, it's less of a spectacular and more of a celebration, a celebration of everything we loved, loved about video games in 2018. Uh, Less pomp, less circumstance, more raw, intimate conversation, conversation that I hope will change you. It's already changed me in planning this show uh, for each of you. Here's, Here's what's going to happen. We have each, the four of us, each assembled an individual top 10 games list, our top 10 games of 2018, which is funny because I know only uh, one of us uh, only played 12 games this year. So I don't know how good his games actually are, but we'll get into that. Um, I have assigned a point value to each game. So our number ones all got 10 points. Our number twos got nine points all the way down to our number 10 picks, uh, which received one point each. I have uh, combined all these together using a form of math called addition. And we are going to go through this combined list of games from the lowest score to the highest score. And we didn't have a ton of crossover, guys. Uh, We are four unique uh, gamers, just as we are four unique personalities. So of the 40 spots, we have 32 unique titles. So very, very big list. But let me assure you, at the end, we will reveal the definitive GameCritics.com podcast, and I'll just say it, the GameCritics.com website, 2018 Game of the Year. And this will be a game uh, that every member of GameCritics.com, whether they are here tonight or not, uh, whether they are a a staff writer or a a member of management, uh, everyone associated with this site will recognize this as the single, sole, absolute GameCritics.com Game of the Year. Uh, This decision will not be questioned. Uh, It will not be spoken badly of. And I just, I have to say, it is so wonderful to have the full support of the entire GameCritics.com leadership uh, in allowing us here tonight to choose the definitive GameCritics.com 
game of the year. So I just want to thank leadership. If they're listening, uh, thank you so much for your support. Gentlemen, I'm sure you share the sentiment. 100%. As sort of a de facto member of leadership, then I guess, yes. <laughs> as, as, a, as a drone, I don't care. <laughs> oh, you're, Richard, your, your confidence uh, is inspiring. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome, um, Captain. Yeah. So we're going to get right into this. We're going to jump in because, we again, we've got 32 games to talk about. Um, and I what I will do is I will d- say what the combined score was and then where it sat on your individual lists, where we have a combination. I'll share that information, and uh, we'll see how this goes. So um, we only had one game that scored only one point. And Dan, it was your number 10 pick. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, buddy. Um, But ironically, it has a pair of 11s in the title. So numerologists are are having a a conniption right now. Um, 11-11 memories retold. And I'll be very frank. I've never heard of this game, Dan. Tell me how it wound up on your list. Uh, It's quite simple. I mean, A, it really hit me where I live because as a, uh, as a, half German, half Canadian. Uh, the fact that it's about Canadians and Germans experience in World War One, I was immediately predisposed to like, but it's an incredibly humane look at what it's like being a soldier in war generally and that terrible war specifically. It is beautifully drawn. It is brilliantly paced. You can get through it in about four hours and it's just an incredibly well-told story. And it comes from Ardman, the people who make Wallace and Gromit. And Sean the Sheep. So, and yeah. for those who for those who don't know, what what is the format of the game? Is it a visual it novel a, or uh, you'd you'd think? Uh, no, it's just <laughs> a standard. It's a standard interactive movie. You walk a character around. You talk to other characters. You do simple tasks. You find items. Pretty standard um, interactive movie format, but all done in this gorgeous painterly style, where the whole game looks like. Uh, either a watercolor or a Van Gogh, depending on the scene. So amazing artwork, but the artwork is used to help sell the theme of the game, which is that this is everyone's memories of the First World War rather than your experience in the First World War. Very nice. Very, very well done game. I appreciate it a lot. And I know not a lot of people played it, but they really should take the time to check it out. 11-11 memories retold. Dan? I think that's a fantastic way to kick things off. Okay. <laughs> you sound skeptical, but I, trust I'm me. A little. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, so we're going to move to our next game. So we have a, a number of games that tied with two points here. Uh, and this is this next one is our first game that appeared on two of our lists. This is Richard's number 10 and my number 10 as well. The game is Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Uh, Richard, I'm going to let you kick this off because uh, I'm still not entirely sure why I like this game as much as I do. I'm hoping you can articulate it better than me. Um, Well, in this case, the title is actually pretty self-descriptive. This is the ultimate version of Smash Brothers. Um, It is the fifth game, if I'm not mistaken, in the series. And uh, what started off as as a joke is now a pretty honest to god solid fighting game um i have never been much into fighting games but this one's always been you know one i've been there for and um 
the mechanics have not changed a whole lot over the course of the series, but this is just, it's the most expansive roster the game has ever had or the series has ever had. Um, it finally, finally, finally has a real online system to go with it. So, um, it's just the, it's kind of like, uh, Mario Kart 8 where it's the best version of something that's been iterated over already about five or six times. I I have tried and failed on four separate occasions with the first four games in the series to figure out how even to play Smash Brothers, to even understand those mechanics. And, And for whatever reason, this time it's taken. And I think that's because... I'm putting more time into it, not so much because of the gameplay, but because the boundless Nintendo nostalgia is just so incredibly appealing to me. Um, And it's not even just Nintendo nostalgia anymore. It's not. I mean, and what I love doing is I go into the spirit board, and and if you don't know the spirit board, uh, for those who don't know, you get 10 or 12 different uh spirits which are basically just kind of buffs for your uh for your characters uh represented by some sort of character or object from nintendo or just general video game mythology and i just like looking at what they thought of like yesterday i unlocked the urban champion which is just one of the worst original NES games. It's so bad, it's it's kind of good. Um, I unlocked the Mock Rider, which is another one of those games. I'm sure Gumshoe is in there somewhere. Uh, and and just going back into the Spirit Board and then uh, screwing around with the combat, I, I just I keep coming back to it. And the more I play, the better I seem to be getting, at least against the AI. So um, I'm finally understanding Smash Brothers in a way that I never did previously. Uh, I don't know how far I'll go with it. I haven't unlocked anywhere near all of the characters, but um, it, it's it's been pleasurable enough and it's been satisfying enough uh, that it warranted you know the number 10 spot on my list. So, um, and I'll let us get on here in a second, but in college, uh, the GameCube version of which I believe is called Smash Brothers Melee was the game amongst me and my my college chums and I was a terror an absolute terror with the ice climbers so mm. once you get to that point I will be happy to meet you on the field of battle and then we can <laughs> we can we can see what's what's going on the only character I'm any good at is Kirby because that's the one they give you first in the single mm-hmm. player mode and I've I'm I, I refuse to get comfortable with anyone else, so it's just I'm maining Kirby, which my daughter tells me is really lame and uncool. But nevertheless, Kirby I'm is doing the it. best. Be- he is the best beginner character. There's a quite a few good beginner characters, but I would say he is the best. Well, I uh, the more I play, the harder it is to pull away from him. So, uh, but yeah, I look forward to playing you online and, and getting destroyed. You should play my daughter though; she's finished the single player. She's a master at the game. I um, have having met your daughter and actually watched her play games. I think she would absolutely destroy me. Yep, no doubt, no doubt. As well, it should be. So, Super Smash number ten on both of our lists, sir. Um, Mike, we haven't heard from you yet. We're, we're going to skip your number 10 for the moment and go to your number nine, uh, Monster Hunter World, which I understand people really, really dig Monster Hunter World. Oh, so did no one else pick this? 
That's okay. You're the only one. I was surprised, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird because this is uh, this is actually a very uh, popular game on Game Critics, but I guess uh, we're stuck with the three guys who didn't play it. Uh, in fact, actually, did not it, get a, oddly enough, it was on my list of games to play this year, and I just did not get around to it. I mean, it's a it's a pretty all or nothing game. It's it's you either don't play it or you play the shit out of it. Um, yeah, this is. Um, I, I mean. For one thing, I want to I want to give this game a special shout out because it came out in January, which is what I'm always screaming at AAA publishers to do more of. Um, I realize that they're scared that we're going to forget about it in Game of the Year lists by the time the end of the year rolls around. But you always get that big lull, um, which uh, this year unfortunately is going to be filled by Kingdom Hearts. Um, but yeah, Monster Hunter World. I for some reason I went into this. Maybe it was just because of the title. I went into this thinking it was going to be like a, a, an open world game, like. Uh, compared to the sectioned off rooms of the uh, original Monster Hunter games. And it wasn't quite that. So it wasn't like the massive leap forward that I was maybe expecting. And um, that's why it's not higher on this list. But um, it's just full of so many quality of life uh, additions, just like the fact that you don't have to use paintballs anymore, the fact that you have an unlimited whetstone. Um, it's just, it's just, um, it's a very iterative series, but um, it just gets a little bit better with every entry. And um, the one thing I will say about it is that, um, you know, it's a famously inaccessible series. And even though this is actually, I think, Capcom's best selling game ever at this point, um, there's still a lot of people who just didn't click with it. And I think, I think they, one of the things that they should put on the agenda for continuing to make the series better is to make the tutorials a little more thorough. So people actually know how to play without consulting, uh, um, online guides and everything, but yeah, um, you know the 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 thrill of hunting these giant monsters and uh, you know really uh, sort of coming into your own with whatever weapon you pick. The fact that you have, I think there are fourteen different weapons, and each one is a completely different style. Um, it makes it such a cool multiplayer game because you really feel like you're adding something unique to each fight. And uh, and just on a personal level, like um, like I said, this this game is huge on game critics and. Uh, I, I played with a bunch of, uh, people, you know, Brad and Chi and, and Darren, and it was just kind of cool to, um, have that sort of community experience and catch up with those guys. So, yeah. I played this one as well. You played it, didn't you? I I did. And I loved it. I think it's the best, the best entry in the series. And I'm glad it's the one that broke out and that everyone got a chance to take a look at. I, really loved it. It's just this was a really packed year, or this would have been on my top 10. It's just been a huge year for games. And I just got to say, I was so happy that they finally made a Monster Hunter game that didn't seem like it was kind of pissed at you for wanting to play a Monster Hunter game. <laughs> yeah. And that like, was like, the it, it doesn't waste a lot of time, does it? I mean, no, it well, wants you to re- play re- the game. Relatively speaking. <laughs> well, yes, comparatively. It seems like every time there's a Monster Hunter release that somebody it's 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 always announced as the one that will draw in the casual fan and i don't feel like this is a casual game at all but is this is this one genuinely that game could somebody like me who has found this an impenetrable series could somebody like me actually play this game even with this uh you know this poor tutorial that you mentioned mike uh, could could it get its hooks into me? Do you think? 
I, I really don't know because yeah, the, I mean, the main the main reason that I was able to get into it was because I was already into it. and It felt very familiar to me. Um, to be honest, like the only reason I got into Monster Hunter in the first place was um, I think Monster Hunter Four was the first one that I got into, and I was writing for a different site at the time, and I volunteered to review it in case we got a review code, and I didn't think we would because Capcom never gave us review codes, but then they did, and I was like, well, shit, I got to learn how to play this game now, so. Uh, so, so I mean, I mean, you, you know, you can you can get help, but like I said, it is it is still a very unwelcoming franchise, and that's one of the things that I think they still need to work on. That and it's, uh, it's easier. Uh, to, I would say it's easier to learn than any previous one. But if I hadn't played most of the previous ones, I would have been absolutely baffled at what to do when you get to those boss monsters in the game because they don't explain any of those systems well at all. Yeah, they really don't. And I heard you get married to a cat. Is that right? <laughs> Pretty much, okay. Got and they it. make you they make you dinner. They're they're oh. so happy to make you dinner. Whoa, <laughs> that sounds great. No, they do, they, they make you dinner. It's 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 like the it's it's the most joyful cooking animation I've ever seen in a video game. They are so happy to make food for you. Sold, sold. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, Dan, we're coming back to you for your number nine pick, and that is a game called Cold Iron. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to direct people to my review of this one. It's VR. It's available on PSVR and Vive and Oculus. It's just this beautiful puzzle game that's also a Wild West quick draw shooter. And it looks just like a quick draw shooter. It starts in the Wild West you're drawn against the guys who killed your father. Simplest thing in the world. You just got to be fast. And then you go from there to quick drawing against wizards in a haunted forest. And then you go from there to, you know, quick drawing against robots in a destroyed post-apocalyptic city. And at, the farther you get into the game, the more you realize that this isn't about reflexes. Those are important. What it's about is figuring out patterns, identifying what kind of level you're in, and, you know, mentally you know, essentially tricking your way through each of these fights. It's, it's beautiful. It's got a great story, only takes you about an hour to play. And I adored it. It's the only VR game I put on the list this year. And I think it really deserves the attention. We are uh, definitely going to be talking more about VR games tonight. What's fascinating uh, as I look back at my, inventory of VR games. I I actually have a backlog now of VR games, which is absolutely crazy given where PSVR was and where it is now. I've got seven or eight games lined up, installed, ready to play that I just haven't gotten to yet. It really has been an extraordinary year for VR. Absolutely. I mean, I haven't even gotten to the best PSVR game this year, uh, the Astrobot. I haven't even gotten to that yet. It's crazy. Hmm. I wonder if we'll hear more about Astrobot tonight. I was going to say, I'm sure someone's going to get to that. I hope so. Golly willikers. (laughs) Cold Iron. Thank you, Dan. Uh, You know, a proud tradition on this podcast uh, for many years has been listening to Richard talk about uh, Mega Man both in a positive and negative light. So I'm very curious to hear uh, his take on his number nine pick, uh, Mega Man 11, which I completely forgot came out this year. Uh, Richard, tell me about uh, the Mega Man's 11th adventure. Uh, well, 
just to be super technical about it, this is actually the Megaman's twelfth adventure. There was a there was a weird thing where there are actually kind of two Mega Man eights. Um, so this is actually the twelfth game in the the series proper. But I'll let people look that up if they actually want to. I very seriously doubt that you will. Um, but uh, so this game, I was not interested really at all in this game um, until shortly before it came out, and this. It's different. I mean, it's a Mega Man game. You know what a Mega Man game is. Everyone knows what a Mega Man game is. Um, the one thing they do add that's kind of interesting is the gear system, which um, for the beginning of the game, you can actually slow down or, or speed up time or add power to your shots. And what kind of struck me is that, and going back to Mighty Number no. 9, does everyone remember Mighty Number no. 9? Oof, yes. Uh, and yeah. That that kind of that that disaster it feels like this is what mighty number no. 9 was trying to do with its uh you know with its changing modes system and in this game it actually works it's an interesting new wrinkle to the standard mega man formula because otherwise this is a it's a standard mega man game there's eight bosses they all have weapons you get weapons and you go through the wily stages and defeat him and blah blah but my god what a damning, damning indictment of Keiji Inafune's management. Because if he leaves, gets full control of the entire process and puts out Mighty Number no. 9, and then without him, Capcom puts this out? Oof. <laughs> like, that's what the, that's the most noteworthy thing about it, really, is it just, I mean, it just really turns the head on uh, you know, who everyone thought was the Mega Man guy for the longest time. And you really was the Mega Man guy in a lot of ways, but like just taking the reins off or taking uh, all of the reins and he puts out a complete epic disaster. And then Capcom puts out a pretty solid game in his absence is just really, really surprising. You know, credit to him though. He did give us recore. He, Oh, <laughs> oh you know, that was, Oh, wow. God, I, Oh, so what's interesting about that is wow. Mighty Number no. Nine and Recore came out the same year, almost at the exact same time. God, that's true. Yeah, didn't you guys do a whole podcast about uh, about how much it sucks? Yes, very bad year. Yeah, yeah. KG Inafune, I believe on the uh, Game of the Year show that year, my award for it was KG Inafune's No Good, Very Bad Year. That's it. Yeah. Oh. Well, hey, it's not every year you get a good Mega Man game, so that's great news. I'm glad you oh, got that, not. Richard. Oh, it's it's very good. I highly, if you like Mega Man games, I highly recommend it. Awesome, fantastic. I um for my number nine uh, on my list, I apparently played through Final Fantasy 15 Royal Edition. Uh which was the enhanced version of Final Fantasy 15 and I I had absolutely no recollection that I apparently started and completed this game uh in the first quarter of this year and it wasn't until preparing for the show that I looked back at my trophy list and remembered that I had consumed this game uh which tells you the the impact it had on me but um as I reflected back on it, I actually, I had a pretty good time with this game. It was nice to play a good Final Fantasy game 
again. And and I say good with an asterisk asterisk because this game is a huge mess. I mean, it it was clearly at some point Square Enix said, "All right, you're done. Just." tie these pieces together and we're going to release this game because the back half of the game is completely disconnected from uh, the first half of the game. Uh, you can't get to the open world once you get past a certain point unless you, I think, talk to a time-traveling dog and he can send you back to the open world. Uh, the story hinges on the love between Noctis, our main character, and uh, a woman who never really interact in any sort of meaningful way. They just tell you they're in love and you're supposed to embrace it. Um, but the world of Final Fantasy XV was really appealing to me. I enjoyed this sort of techno middle America that you're just on this road trip with your three buddies driving through that piece of it. Even though the characters were not great, they were good enough. Uh, driving that convertible across this land and going on these MMO-style quests. I'm an MMO guy. That was very appealing to me. Uh, somehow, it kept me engaged uh, until the bitter end. And then I promptly forgot it ever happened. So, I, <laughs> so take that for what you will, but uh, Final Fantasy XV, uh, not a horrible experience, uh, and and good enough to make my number nine slot. So there you have it. Funny you called it the bitter end because that certainly is a bitter end, isn't it? The way that game ends. Uh, yeah, and and it's uh, I, I don't entirely understand it. I feel like they they could have used another twenty minutes to to tie everything up. I mean, at the end of the first act of the game is this apocalyptic event, which basically takes place. It changes the 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 entire world changes and it it's covered in a like 20 second cutscene and then a radio address. And then the ending of the game uh, is this hyper surreal, completely inexplicable uh, again, like two minute cutscene uh, that's wildly unsatisfying. And then you take a picture by a giant turtle and then you can you post mm -hmm. it to your Twitter. Uh, and that's how the game ends. And, uh, and maybe that's why I, I, forgot about all of it so i don't know um I, I will never go back i will never play the dlc I, i'll have no interest in doing that at all but um and I, they canceled it didn't they they canceled the rest of the dlc so that's not even coming out um anyway so that's final fantasy 15 that was my number nine richard we're coming back to you uh for your number eight game this scored three points on our uh, scoring system and it is speaking of three and this is a great segue Darksiders 3. Oh boy. Um, so Souls-likes, Souls um, which for those who don't know are copycats of the, the Souls series, have never really got on with me. Um, you know, you've got Lords of the Fallen, you have um, blanking on some other, I'm blanking on the other games that have tried to do it, but none of them have ever really grabbed me. But then for whatever reason, this one did. Like, it's not a fantastic Souls-like, but it it functions like it's a pretty nice blend of uh, souls, uh, soul style level design and and enemy encounters with uh, Devil May Cry slash God of War uh, combat style. And on a on a broader note, so this is uh, as we said, this is Darksiders three. So Darksiders two, which came out, uh, I want to say about ten years ago, a like nine or ten years ago. I 
absolutely hated that game. I hated, hated, hated that game. That game is really the reason I don't play a lot of games anymore because <laughs> that was the game where I finally decided that, you know what? And that, so that game is, it's 40 to 50 hours long and it's awful. Like it's a terrible game. And that was when I decided that, you know what, if something I'm, if I'm not really interested in something, I'm just not spending more than five or so hours with it. I'm just not doing it. And that's why I, that's why I am the person who only played 12 games this year. There's a bunch of different games that I played for like, you know, 20 minutes or so, and then just stopped because I wasn't into it. Um, but then three, I wanted to give a chance to, because one, I thought it was never, I was never going to get made because THQ exploded and lo and behold, they put together, that was put together something that was actually pretty solid. So kudos to uh gunfire, which is the, the remade version of their old studio that was under THQ. Richard, I, I, if we were still doing regular podcasts, I think uh, this is a game that would have made a good episode because I'm playing it right now and I've got opinions on it. And yeah, they you don't hate it. I know you hate it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, but I, I don't want to get too much into it because, you know, first of all, we got a lot of games to get into and I don't, I don't want to rain on your parade. This is supposed to be a celebration of things we like. So, but yeah. Uh, if, there's, if you actually want to try an interesting, different, that's pretty engaging Souls-like, it that goes on sale a lot. Check out the surge. I got into it this year, and I really had a good time. Yeah, that one's okay. It's like yeah, um, it, 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 it's like uh, if Dark Souls was set in a Neil Blomkamp movie. Yeah, that's not that bad sounds amazing. Actually, it's, it's pretty badass. Yeah. Uh, now we have to take a pause here uh, and and explain something to the group, and that is. That Richard, because of the way the math works out here, uh, we are not going to hear from you again for about 12 games. <laughs> now, to keep you engaged, Richard, uh, uh-huh. I've, prepared a, I've prepared a little activity for you that we will come back to periodically. Um, when you hear uh, this sound... <laughs> <laughs> And Richard, that's a kitty cat. I'm, I'm aware. I when know what a cat hear, sounds like. When, when you hear the kitty cat sound, we are going to come to you with a Star Trek Deep Space Nine trivia question. <laughs> which <laughs> Sorry. You, you will have to answer uh, here live on the air. Damn. So, I'm okay with that. Yeah, and, and I think you'll do pretty well here. Uh, if you get all the questions right, there'll be a special prize for you at the end. So uh, just be listening for the kitty cat and then is, get ready is to Felipe going to deliver the prize. Uh, I, you know what? I will commit to Felipe delivering the prize personally to your home. As long as you pay for his transportation. That's fine. He can, he can go in a crate, right? Like you'll fit in one of those. Uh, he only travels by crate. Okay. That's fine. Perfect. All right, so listen for that kitty cat, and we'll be coming back to you, Richard, uh, throughout this long Richardless stretch. Uh, Will do. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna move over uh, back to Mike Susky to talk about his number seven game on his list. It's not just Spider Man; it's Marvel's Spider Man. Oh, this is weird. Yeah, because we're we're jumping all over my list, aren't we? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's the the math is funny with your list, but there are reasons. Yeah, this is. I, I think this is kind of like the first great Spider-Man game because um, that 
the game that was based on uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, uh, that was a huge breakthrough for sandbox games because, I mean, it was like, I think it was the first superhero sandbox game. Like, it it, it predates Crackdown and Infamous and all those. Um, the web slinging just felt so good in that game, but otherwise it wasn't that remarkable. Um, it was it was basically like a really mediocre game that just happened to have an amazing central mechanic behind it. And um, none of the Spider-Man games since have really capitalized that uh, capitalized on that until now. Like this is um, this is made by Insomniac, and I was I was pretty confident that they could pull this off because um, they did what I thought was a great sandbox game called uh, Sunset Overdrive, um, which also had a really good movement system. Um, this one I think nails the web slinging perfectly. Um, it it feels uh, effortless, but not too easy. If that makes sense. Um, but the thing is, w- what I like about this game isn't that it gets the web slinging right because it, you know, there were other games that did that. It's that it kind of gets everything else right. Like I, I found the combat extremely satisfying in the variety of things that you are able to do and the way that the game is harsh enough that it actually forces you to use them. And uh, the story is surprisingly good. Like I, I, I went into, I went into this just kind of expecting a, a inconsequential comic book story and um there is a lot of like kind of inherent silliness to some of the villains but um it's got some surprisingly human moments and it's it's got an ending that i I won't say anything about it but it's i think it's maybe the only good triple a ending i've seen this year one that actually is uh isn't content to just bring everything back to the status quo so it's it's uh you know looks great feels good to play um it has a very traditional sandbox structure like you're there's a lot of collecting. There are times when uh, uh, Peter Parker kind of says, I, I have some time to kill before my next mission. So I better go do some activities. Um, but it, it feels so good that I think you can kind of get away with that. Like I don't, I don't need every sandbox game to be, to just completely uh, reinvent the wheel, you know, as long as what I'm doing is fun enough that I look for excuses to do it. Uh, that works. It, it, it just, it, it kind of uh, playing this game kind of felt the same way that uh, playing Batman Arkham Asylum did, where it was like, oh, finally someone made a great Batman game. Well, finally someone made a good Spider Man game, and this is it. So, Mike, I just want to second what you said about movement systems and make and if there if movement systems are solid enough, you can get away with that kind of sandbox busy work. Um, because Arkham City specifically, the uh, grappling hook and glide mechanic that you use to get around, it made all of those tedious video game tasks so much more enjoyable just because the act of moving around was so much fun. So I, I totally get that. Yeah, and I, I think one of the best, like the best thing I can say about uh, Spider-Man as as a sandbox game, as a movement-based sandbox game, is this game has a fast travel system that I never used because I had so much fun getting around the world that it's like, why would I rob myself of that? It it just right. never got old. It felt amazing. The week yeah. this thing came out, uh, I had it pre-ordered. I was desperate to play it. It looked fantastic. The week before it came out, the disc drive on my PS4 died, uh, and I know. And I, and I would thought maybe I should just download it. Uh, but I saw that they were doing PS4s. Like I wanted to get a new PS4 to, because it's well out of warranty. Uh, so I wanted to get a new PS4 and I thought, saw they were doing Spider-Man editions of the PS4 and I'm like, boom, free copy of Spider-Man. So two weeks ago, I got myself a copy of Spider-Man. I haven't dug into it yet, but 
honestly, based on everything I've heard and everything you guys have said, I cannot wait to get started on this thing anymore. Like, so this week mm-hmm. I'm loading up Spider-Man just based on that. Yeah, I've got it. Um, I ordered it and it actually arrived today and I haven't played it yet, but that's, that's going to change very soon, possibly right after this podcast. <laughs> I don't own Spider-Man, but I did see the Into the Spider-Verse movie, and hey, that's a pretty good motion picture, isn't it? Absolutely. I've not seen it. Better than pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty damn good. Uh, All right, Spider-Man. Thank you, Mike. Dan, for your number seven, this this was going to be on your top ten list. It was really just a matter of where it was going to go. Uh, EDF five. Is there anything better than hearing you, Dan Weisenberger, talk about an EDF game? I don't think there is. Go for it. Very little. Uh, it is a game. First off, this game has a genre entirely to itself. And I don't understand how that happens. Like the, the, what I've dubbed the epic action genre, where it is a giant force on your side and a giant force on their side. But instead of being a strategy game, it's a third person shooter and you're just part of the battle. That's an incredible experience. And every now and then, another action game will have like a set piece fight like that. Like in Halo 3, suddenly there'll be a couple of scarab tanks and you'll have some tanks on your side. And there's like 30 guys running around shooting. That's every moment. Like the highest point of incredible of Halo 3 is every moment of Earth Defense Force. Like it is a constant, fraught, dangerous battle against an overwhelming force and you use brutally overpowered weapons to deal with it. Uh, I played this entire game 80-ish hours last year when I imported the Japanese copy, and I'm now 60 hours into playing it again in English because it's that good. You can play it, replay it infinitely. For the first time in the series, uh, they added, last time, they added three new, sorry, two new character classes, and they were a little iffy. This time, every single character class can be soloed and mained. And each one of them plays so completely differently that every level in the game feels like a different game when you're playing as a different character. So there's 110 levels, five difficulty levels, and they've gone so nuts with the difficulty levels that it's not just tougher monsters and more monsters. There are exclusive monsters that only appear at the highest difficulty level. So if you go from hard to Inferno, you're going to see stuff you've never seen before in the game. And that's something that almost no game does. There is a giant, shocking amount of content. If you think about it, five characters, 110 levels. uh, So that's 550 levels for the difficulty difficulty alone. And then four different characters. Sorry, five difficulty levels, 110 levels, 550 levels of the game, four different characters. That's 2,200 levels of gameplay in this thing. It is the best deal for your dollar you will ever see in the world of video games. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. Why is Dan, this I love, series? I love that you... yeah. Go ahead, sorry, Richard, go ahead. please. No, I Dan, I love, I love that you brought back Halo 3 for another jab <laughs> uh, 12 years later. I, I have to. I wrote an article years and years ago about why Earth Defense Force 17 was 10 times the game Halo 3 would ever be. And I stand by that statement. Earth Defense Defense Force 35 in like 10 years. It's like why this game is better than Halo 3. Well, not Halo 3. I'm just saying I'll, I'll update it to whatever Halo is around by then. 
but yeah, it's it's that good. I mean, it really is that good. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you guys have even tried it, but I don't know a lot of people who play these games who don't wind up loving them. They're um, a beautiful experience that just gets better every time they make a new one. I'm just. I treasure these guys at Sandlot. I'm a little worried that next year Iron Rain is coming out, and that's made by a different developer. And it's trying to be a more modern third-person shooter version of it. So I am filled with dread, but I'm hoping for good things. It's it's perplexing why this series isn't more popular. Yeah. like If you can just get people to try it. They love it. They get hooked. But how yeah. do you get people to try it? Yeah, it's just the weirdest game in the world. And you can say, well, it's a game where your uh, team of super soldiers uses power armor to fight Godzilla. Why are you not already playing the game? (laughs) Why do I have to keep selling this to you? Anguirus was added to this one. Anguirus is in this game. Like there's Godzilla and you spend half the game battling Godzilla and you're like, I can finally kill Godzilla's. Oh, Anguirus is here now. Oh, Oh, hell. (laughs) It's perfect. It's a perfect game. Love it. Love it. Thank you, Dan. My my number seven, I think, is on the polar opposite spectrum. Uh, this is a little tiny indie darling for the iOS uh, platform. It's called Florence. And uh, I am 100% not the target audience for Florence. It, it is uh, an hour-long game about a young woman uh, who falls in love and how that experience changes her. And it's very linear. There aren't really any choices. I'm not even sure you could call it a a visual novel. You navigate the game by playing these little mini games that pop up over the course of the the narrative. But uh, it's just a very, very uh, innovative way to convey this story. There's no dialogue. There's no text. It's just imagery and these little interactive uh, elements that tell this wonderful story about about this journey that this this woman goes on. And it's very human and it's very relatable. Um, I, I'm sure the developers were not intending for, you know, 40-year-old dude to play this game, uh, but it affected me deeply. I really, uh, it took me on a, it took me on a journey. And, and I, uh, I said, well, gosh, I, I think I'll have, have my daughters try this. So I, I gave this, you know, my phone to one of my daughters and I said, try this. She sat down with it and, uh, gave me the phone back when she was done. And I said, well, how did, how did you like it? Did, did you enjoy the journey? And she goes, meh. I said, all right, well, great. Thanks daughter. I appreciate it. Um, I saw that coming a mile away. (laughs) Yeah. She had absolutely no connection to this whatsoever. So, uh, Hey, you know what? I, I had a good experience and, and that's all that matters. So yeah, if you've got an hour to burn in an iPhone, I, it is uh, well worth your time. Florence is, is uh, a pretty, pretty great experience. Um, Oh wait, do you guys hear that? (gasps) Oh, it's a kitty cat. That means it's time for Richard to answer a Star Trek Deep Space Nine trivia question. Uh, Richard, are you there? I'm. I'm still here, and I have. I do have uh, two actual cats in the room with me. If you want to hear an actual meow. <laughs> well, I'm not sure they know the right timing for when you're supposed to answer trivia. I mean, I'm sure they've watched you watch Star Trek before, but I don't trust them with this responsibility. No. Um. Richard, uh, hold on to your your armrests because here's your trivia question. Uh, In the sixth season episode, Far Beyond the Stars, Cisco has hallucinations 
in which he is a struggling science fiction writer in 1950s New York. What was his name in this reality? Uh, Benny, what was it? I forget, I forget his last name. Uh, was it Benny Hill? Was it Benny Hill? No, oh. it was not Benny Hill. I'm so sorry. Uh, the was answer ben, was it. Was it Benny something? It was. It yes. It was Benny something. Uh, how you came up with Benny Hill? I don't know. I mean, obviously, the famous British comedian is how yeah. he came up with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, nobody is he seriously. Nobody yeah. loves I, I Benny actually, Hill more than Richard. I actually have no idea who Benny Hill is. I just pulled that name straight out of my <laughs> ass. It's it's why we all know the song Yakety Sax. But anyway. Uh, if you saw Benny Hill, you would know Benny Hill. But uh, no, it's Benny Russell, Richard. Benny uh, Russell. That's oh. it. So uh, we'll continue. Yeah, half, cre- half credit. Half credit. <laughs> we will half see if we can find. The same first name. <laughs> Uh, if we can find a lesser prize for you, Richard, if you can get the rest of the questions correct, I'll see if I can get something uh, slightly lower quality sent out to you. But um, I hope you enjoyed that and, and that you feel a part of the, the show, even though you haven't had a chance to talk about a game in a while. Can I, can I try I a quick well, question for Richard? Which is, as a, so, that's, as so that's kind of interesting is that you talk about I haven't talked about a game in a while when I commented on the last two games. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Well, let me um, let me try a quick thing. All right. Uh, mm. let, let's try a quick quiz question. Make it up. Uh, in the episode, uh, Kira is playing a writer who has to go by her initials so no one will know that a woman is writing science fiction. What real life writer is that a reference to? Oh, God. I know who you're talking about, but I have no idea. I okay, don't know her name. Bad. It was DC Fontana who worked on the original okay. Star Trek. So there you go. I thought you might yeah. have that one. Is it? Yeah. All right. No, I did not. I knew exactly who you were talking about and the writer that she was she was emulating, but I did not know her name. All right. Damn it. I was trying to help, and I just made it worse. Hey, guys, I've never watched to. an episode of Star Trek. How does that make you feel? <laughs> like you're missing out. That's interesting, because I think early, early years ago, uh, didn't Corey say the same thing? Corey said he'd never watched Star Trek, yeah. and then he started watching, and he got completely hooked, if memory serves. Yeah, I believe he just finished up DS9 this year. Wow. So, Mike, there's still hope for you. Hmm. <laughs> All right. There's only 740 hours to consume. And I believe all of them are on, well, except for the, the brand new show, but I believe all of the, the TV series are on Netflix now. Yeah, well, I still have so much, so much of my life ahead of me. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we we at long last. It's been a while, but we finally have come to another game that appears on two of our lists. This is Mike's number ten game, and this is my number eight. It is uh, the latest iteration of a popular puzzle game. It's the Tetris effect. And Mike, since I just talked about Florence, I'm going to let you talk about Tetris effect. Well, what was that noise that Dan just made? Do you disapprove? 
No, I just I don't see putting it in the top ten. But I mean, it's good, but it's still tech. Yeah, it's great. It's it's uh, so this was made by uh, I got his name here. Hold on, uh, Tetsuya Mizuguchi. I think he was the producer. Uh, this is the guy that made Lumines, uh, which uh, got a remaster this year. So he's a, he's had a very good year, and it kind of feels really similar in that it is a. Uh, I mean, obviously people know what Tetris is, but. Um, Lumines was a uh, falling block puzzle game uh, where the music was dynamically synced to what was happening on screen. And he basically takes that and applies it to Tetris. And um, I've often said that I think Tetris is like maybe the only perfect video game. And what Tetris effect does basically is that it just adds a whole bunch of um, colors and flashing lights and, and uh, lovely music and stuff and and a lot of people have kind of had the reaction that Dan had where people were like, well, okay, why? I mean, like, I see why this is good, but why are people going nuts about it? It is still just Tetris. And the thing is, I, I feel like that's kind of all you can do with Tetris uh, to improve upon it. And I just kind of like that, you know, Tetris is like, you know, it's been around for decades. I think, I think it's like the highest selling game of all time or something. Uh, everybody knows what it is. And yet, even after all this time, this year, it, Tetris was back in the conversation. People were getting enthusiastic about it again. Um, uh, VR was a big selling point for this game. I, I don't think that's like a make or break factor for it. Like I actually got, I actually bought this game and played it before I got a PSVR. Um, it makes it better, but I think it's just um, it's it's kind of corny in the best way. I think there have been uh, over the years many bad Tetris games. And I've played enough Tetris to know pretty quickly which I'm playing. And Tetris Effect is all of the all of the synesthesia and you know VR immersion aside, Tetris Effect is a great playing game of Tetris. It plays beautifully. And that is obviously the number one requirement for me to to like a Tetris game. Uh, but in VR and, and, you know, I, I like to use VR to try and achieve some sort of sensory transcendence. Uh, Tetris Effect does a really good job of that. Because when you play Tetris, you get into a zone anyway. And then when you add the sights and the sounds, the synesthesia, um, I did find myself having kind of an otherworldly sensory experience from time to time. And it it, it felt really, really good. Uh, and, and so... Uh, that's why I have it rated uh, so high on my list at number eight. It's probably worth mentioning that uh, Mizuguchi also did Res. And um, I, I, Tim, I don't know if you've played uh, Res Infinite, but um, that that extra game mode that they added for uh, Res Infinite that that is it is called Area X, and it was uh, widely known as like one of the best showcases of VR. Um, this feels very similar to that. I think. I mean, I, I mean the imagery like explicitly looks very similar, but it, it, it is one of those things where it's, it doesn't have much definition, but it's just beautiful to take in and be transported into. Yeah. When, when I finally played res in VR, I finally got res. Like I liked res before and that was fine, but, but it felt like it, it was meant to be played in VR and in a technology that did not exist yet. But now that it does, uh, that's the perfect venue for it. I think. So, uh, great to share a game with you, Mike. I wonder if perhaps later we'll share another game on our lists. We'll see. 
but for now, we're going to go back to Dan and talk about his number six game. Uh, no shock here to see a Yakuza game, but Dan, which which Yakuza game do you have at number six? Yakuza six, surprisingly. Oh, numbers. Oh. Who could have who could have guessed? Uh, as I said in my write up for this top ten, uh, this was originally number five, but come on, uh, I swapped it uh, with Kiwami too because I got to put six at six just for the sake of numbers, as you say. Uh, it's a beautiful end to Kazuma Kiryu's story. I've been open on this show before and everywhere I can about how he is the best main character in any continuing video game series, like the most fully rounded person across. God, you know, seven games now, even if one of them didn't really happen. Uh, Yakuza Dead Souls. It's amazing. Uh, but yeah, he's he's a wonderful character. He's fully rounded. I know this man better than I've known any other video game character ever. And he's such an inspiring figure and a tragic figure and a heroic figure. And yes, a deeply flawed figure. And the reason I love this game so much, the reason I think it's the absolute height of the Yakuza series, other than five, which is just incredible, is that it actually takes him to task in a way that no other series has. Because you can love him uncritically and you can love the series uncritically, but he's a guy who makes a lot of bad choices in his life. And the thing is, he's always, if you go back to, right back to Zero, which is also, which just came out on Steam, by the way, so you should buy Zero on Steam if you don't have a PS4 and haven't already played it. Right back to Zero, he is a guy who believes in brotherhood and he believes in honor and he believes in all of the right things and he makes such stupid decisions because of it. Because he has faith in people, because he tries to do the right thing, he causes so much trouble when there was a smarter way to handle everything and he always has to come back and beat everybody up. And while I like beating everybody up, it's not always the best thing for the world. And what I loved about the game is finally he gets taken to task for all of the bad decisions he's made. So it really feels like not just the last game about Kazuma Kiryu, it feels like a proper resolution to his story. Uh, it's beautiful uh, Takeshi Katano's in it in a great part, like a truly great part. There's a lot of things where stunt casting could hurt a game, but oh my god, he is he perfect in there because he brings all of the weight of his decades of making movies about the Yakuza to this one role as a uh, as a Hiroshima gangster that is just incredible. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say that you can enjoy this game if you haven't played the rest of the series because 100% you can't. Like, this is a game that is a capper to a story seven games, uh, you know, six other games in the making. So if you don't love Yakuza, you need not apply, but you should love Yakuza. And this will be the the capper on the experience. And these games have been re-released recently enough that you can um, run through the series on yes. modern consoles. Uh, well, what happens is Kiwami is a remake. So start with zero and you really should start with zero. It is a prequel, but it does when they did Yakuza Kiwami, they added a bunch of new stuff to follow up on zero to make Yakuza, the original feel like the second chapter in a story rather than, so Yakuza zero no longer feels like a prequel. It now feels like the start of the story. It was a brilliant move on their part. So, Start with Zero, go to Kiwami, go to Kiwami 2, then 3 isn't out yet in North America. 3, 4, and 5 are out in Japan on the PS4, 
Right now, they're still only out on the PS3 in North America, but they're probably going to be coming soon. Uh, but you can get 3, 4, and 5 on the PS3, and then, of course, uh, 6 is only on the PS4. Yeah, Dan, you know what would make uh, Yakuza better is if you could uh, poke people's pressure points and make their heads instantly explode. That might come up later in the show. Yeah, that's called foreshadowing what I just did. <laughs> you do my job better than I do, Mike. It's fabulous. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Dan, since we have you talking about Yakuza, we can uh, kind of go out of order a bit here. Do you want to talk about Kiwami 2, which you have at, at number five on your list? Oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just throw this in. I've already talked a lot about the beauty of the series. Um, it is largely believed that just from a pure storytelling standpoint, like crafting a narrative that two Yakuza 2 was the best Yakuza game ever. And they have completely recreated that experience with modern gameplay. So it gives all of these people who never had a chance to play the game when it was originally on PS2 to really get into it. And yeah, it's, it's more accessible than it's ever been. It's better than it's ever been. Uh, it is, the fighting is beautiful. The story is fantastic. Um, it's, it's funny because there's there's a moment in it where my only response is i can't believe what a great job they've done uh i am i have famously been skeptical about the importance of graphical improvements but the uh like there's so many things that you can tell without needing realistic facial animations but this game actually showed that there is a there is a key to understanding two characters' relationships. I'm not going to spoil it for you because I want people to see and enjoy this game for themselves. But there is a scene where Kiryu, who is as stone-faced a person as you'll ever see, when he sees what someone is doing, they could do a close-up on his face and you can see the character almost start to smile and then suppress it. And it's just like the hint of a curl at the edge of his lips. Right? And that's all you need to understand the relationship the two characters had. And the fact that there is something that subtle and perfect about a character relationship in a Japanese beat-em-up game is amazing. And it's something you couldn't have done even a couple of years ago because the graphics weren't there to put in that subtle a move. So I really am blown away by how well they've used their graphical improvements just for the storytelling. Like better graphics are great, but if you can use them to help tell your story, that's far better. And they managed it. And I remember you saying very clearly on this show many years ago, Dan, that graphics were not really of any import to you whatsoever. So it's it's interesting to hear you hear you talk I mean, about that. Yeah, that's this is the time that they they definitely aren't a game I'm playing right now that I think is going to be one of my favorite games of this whole year is in CGA. Like the oh, game, this is the uh, is this the Prince Castle. of per the, the Prince, Prince of Persia, Persia type. Except in CGA. It's it's oh, amazing. Boy. But yeah, one of my favorite games so far this year, we're only five days in, but still, is in CGA graphics. Is in three color graphics, and it's magnificent. So no. Um, graphical fidelity isn't important to me. Whether you can use your graphics well is important to me. All right. Well said. Well said. Thank you, Dan. Always fun to hear you talk about Yakuza. Um, I'm just very briefly going to talk about my number six game, and that is another VR game, Beat Saber, 
uh, and again, this is this is my quest for sensory transcendence in VR. Uh, Beat Saber played this on the PSVR. Uh, motion tracking was fantastic. You've got a move controller in each hand. In the uh, experience that is represented by a, basically a lightsaber in each hand, blocks come flying at you to the beat of electronic dance music, and you have to slash the blocks in a certain direction to the rhythm of the music. And uh, when you pop those headphones in and you turn up the music too loud and you get into that slashing zone, it feels amazing. And all of the uh, terrible things that happen in the world on a daily basis uh, drift away, they dissolve, and you are lost in the music and the, uh, the arm swing and it just feels good and when you can say you feel good uh i think you've you've hit on something so beat saber uh and i don't know if I've, any of you have played it uh my number six game of the year and i'm proud to have it there uh tim the only reason i didn't put it on my list is because it's still in early access so i didn't I, it was it was kind of in my mind disqualified but that is absolutely one of the best things i played this year just my it's a and, uh, you know, speaking of my giant VR backlog, Mike, at your number six is a VR game I've been trying to get to and haven't had a chance, uh, Firewall Zero Hour. Yeah, you should play this game because I know you, you were a big fan of uh, Farpoint, weren't you? Yes, sir. Yeah, so that means you have an aim controller, doesn't it? It does. Okay, well, you should get this game because uh, it makes fantastic use of that. So, yeah, this is a um, this is a PSVR game. And I should mention... Um, Tim and Dan were both uh, well into VR before this year, but this was the year that I actually got into it. And in fact, I actually got both a Vive and a PSVR. Um, so I got, I had a lot of really uh, revelatory experiences in that regard. And I mean, I have come to the conclusion that not everything maps perfectly. Um, there is that, uh, there is that problem with a lot of motion controls where there's no physical feedback. So like if you swing your fist at something and in the game it connects, but in real life it doesn't, um, that's always going to be kind of an inherent problem. Um, but the thing that always works great in VR with motion controls is shooting. And, uh, firewall is just one of those cases where, you know, it takes something that would otherwise be relatively mundane. Like this game is basically just um, a relatively low budget version of Rainbow Six Siege. Um, but just the fact that you're playing it in perfectly executed VR just elevates it so much. I mean, just, just um, when I say it's like Rainbow Six Siege, it's a 4v4 tactical shooter where one team is infiltrating, the other team is defending, you know, um, Everybody gets one life. It, it, it's relatively familiar, but um, just just the I, just the feeling of like physically peeking around corners, actually holding up this gun. Like I, I should mention, the aim controller is this like basically a two handed light gun, um, and just like holding the sights up to your eyes. And you know, after playing this for a bit, you know, you go back to like a, a, a non VR shooter, and it's like, oh, I I outplayed this guy because I'm better at tilting a stick, whereas um, you know, you play something like this in VR and when you outplay somebody, you actually feel like you're firing a gun. And it just, it just, um, it was one of the best experiences. I mean, it, it's by far my favorite multiplayer game of the year. Um, 
I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why I took a shot on it because I basically just bought the aim controller just for this. Um, but it was worth it, and I'm still playing it. One of the things I have found about multiplayer VR games, and this is true, I've only played PSVR, so I don't know how things are on PC, but the PSVR community seems to be a really great and mature community. And the first time I experienced it was with Star Trek Bridge Crew, and I had you know a run of 15 or 20 fantastic experiences with people who were really taking the game seriously. They weren't trying to you know screw anything up. No real foul language, no racism. It's, hey, we're here to play Star Trek. And maybe that was just because of Star Trek. Uh, that's, that's the kind of people who are attracted to Star Trek. Um, but as I've explored other multiplayer games, I have found that to be fairly consistent across the board. Is the same thing with Firewall? Is it a good community? It actually is. I, I forgot to mention that. And um, well, I mean, something I kind of like, especially like with a with a cooperative multiplayer game like this in PSVR, is that um, because you need a PSVR to play it, every single person who plays is guaranteed to have a microphone. So you you, you kind of automatically have that. And I, like some people don't want to talk. Some people speak other languages. And I kind of I, I initially made a crack about that because um, that doesn't sound like a good thing to me initially because I don't like human contact. But because the community in this game is so good. And also, like, there's a decent number of people playing this game, too. Like, like considering you need, like, two pretty niche pieces of hardware to take advantage of. You can play this game, apparently, with a normal controller. I don't know how it would work. And I don't think anybody does. Um, but I, I don't have any trouble finding people to play with. And everybody is very cooperative and just wants to work together. And it's it's been great. Well, it was very smart of them. And I got to say, it was very smart of them, just like they did with Farpoint, to essentially charge you the price of the of the aim and give you the game for free. Like yeah, that, I got the bundle really with the, the firewall and it was, yeah. Okay, no, but it's like the, they charge, the, the aim controller just isn't that expensive. It really isn't. And you essentially get a free game with it. And I think it really is encouraging more and more people to pick up the aim controller if they already have PSVR. And that is why you're allowed to have these, you're able to have these huge online groups of people. And I think you're right. I think PSVR is one of the best gamer communities I've ever encountered. You talk about communities, talk about the cat community. Richard, wake up. Uh, uh, No, I'm awake. It's trivia time. Uh, Again, some Star Trek Deep Space Nine trivia for you. Uh, Are you ready? Uh, I'm just going to clear out the cobwebs from that nap. Well, here's your question. And I I have crafted (laughs) this question such that uh, I'm going to give you two possible answers based on this question. So you can miss the first one and still come back for the second one because I want you to be successful here and I'll rig the game to make sure it happens. Here's your question. Early in the series, Cisco had a security chief assigned by Starfleet named Michael Eddington. Mm -hmm. You remember Michael Eddington? Yes, I do remember Lieutenant Commander Eddington. And Lieutenant Commander Eddington eventually turns out to be a, treva- a treasonous Maquis agent. Mm-hmm. In the fifth season episode, entitled 
for the uniform. Eddington makes a reference to two characters from a famous work of literature as an analogy for his relationship, as he sees it, with Sisko. Who wrote this work of literature? Uh, who do you mean? Who wrote Les Miserables? That's correct. Um, well, you've got the work of literature, but I need the uh, yeah, I need the author. I do not know who wrote Les Miserables. <laughs> I say I need the author as though you know lives are on the line. Um, it's, I, I I can tell you the two fictional characters. They're uh, it's Inspector Javert and. Um, uh, oh shit, I don't know the second fictional character. Huh, okay, imagine that. Yeah, Jean Valjean, there you go. Uh, Victor Hugo is our is our author. Ah, okay. So here's... here's um, I, so I, I kind of want to call bullshit on that question because that's not a Star Trek trivia question. That's a old French literature question. <laughs> well, it is, it's a Star Trek question in that you knew... Uh, you knew the name of the work. So clearly yes. you knew the Star Trek episode well enough to know the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, so I'm going to give you the second question based or the second possible question based on this question, Michael Eddington, uh, the actor who played Michael Eddington was the star of a treasured, 1980s era sci-fi classic. He was the lead in this film. Name the film. And if you need the actor's name, I'll give it to you, but I'm, I'm hopeful that you'll get it without. I am almost certain I don't know either of those things. I, I was uh, at most six years old during the 80s, so I have very little memory of that time. Hmm. Well, this is a film that's beloved. And errors on multiple cable stations, uh, basically constantly. It's um, not Last Starfighter, is it? It's no. not the Last Starfighter. No. That's Lance Guest. Uh, what could it possibly be? Michael Eddington was played by the actor Kenneth Marshall, sometimes credited as Ken Marshall. That name does not ring a bell. I'm sorry, Dan. You, I know you. I know you know this. I wish I did. I mean, I'd say something like Flight of the Navigator, but I got nothing. What is it? Last Starfighter is a good guess, because I think it's these these came out very close to each other. Uh, the movie is Crawl. Of Crawl. course. Oh. Yeah. I, have nev- I have never heard of Crawl. It's one of the best movies ever made. And one of Liam Neeson's first appearances on film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Crawl no, is the one I with honestly the... Had, I had no idea it was the same guy. It's it it is once you know it's the same guy you can see it very oh, clearly. Totally. Yeah. But um, it's uh, it I watched it's all amazing. of Deep Space Nine and had no idea. It is an amazing fantasy movie about fantasy people fighting aliens using the glaive, an awesome remote control throwing star, with a James Horner score that sounds like every other James Horner score. <laughs> And that's not a bad thing. Oh, it's no, a they're, fabulous they're badass thing. scores. Yeah, they're badass <laughs> scores, but they all do sound the same. You're completely right. It's immediately recognizable as as a uh, James Horner score. All right, so we are nearly halfway through our list. We're going to do one more game before we take a break. Uh, we're going to go to Mike Susky's number five 
pick. And uh, I believe it is the first game tonight. No, it's the second game tonight uh, with a colon in the title. Uh, it's Far Lone Sales. Far Lone Sales. Uh, yeah, this is uh, kind of a late entry for me. I just played this and it is a game about uh, it, it is a uh, small indie game. It is a uh, dark and moody zero dialogue, mostly monochrome indie game where you pilot a giant land sailboat across a post-apocalyptic world and uh, you grow a very strong connection with this boat. And um, yeah, I I avoided this for most of the year because it looks kind of uh, generically like sort of dreary and kind of pretentious. Um, and it's actually not at all. It it has um, it has a relatively simple story. I mean, there, there are kind of like hints at the grander world, but for the most part, it is just a, a, a story about this this character, this uh, character that we know basically nothing about, and this big, magnificent-looking steampunk boat that uh, takes them for a few hours across uh, a barren landscape and. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, like the big, uh, the big draw of the game is, um, I mean, it's kind of a side-scrolling platformer where you get a cross section of the boat and you basically have to just run around, uh, hitting buttons. Like you don't, you don't pilot it directly, but you have to, uh, know when to hit the brakes. You have to vent steam. You have to keep refilling fuel and, um, you know, bad things keep happening to the boat and you have to sort of, uh, get it through tough situations and repair it when necessary. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It's weird to talk about because uh, I I had this weird emotional attachment to this vehicle, even though it's not even really a character, but it's just kind of this, you know, uh, kind of uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours sort of relationship where uh, the boat takes care of you and you take care of it. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's only a few hours long. I played through it in one sitting. Um, like I said, it's not terribly pretentious. Like, um, some people were saying, Hey, I've heard some people say that the ending is really ambiguous and I didn't think it was, I thought it had a very, uh, nice and very conclusive ending again, no dialogue, but it doesn't really need it. It has a, a, a mood that is surprisingly optimistic. Um, and it looks great. I mean, the whole reason that this game, uh, came to my attention in the first place was because I was, um, back around the time it came out, I was just browsing the steam, like the, newest releases page on steam and uh, the visual design of this boat um, just, just looks towering and magnificent and uh, yeah, just a really, really strong uh, little indie game that I think um, it, not a lot of people played, but it is coming to consoles this year, I think. So I hope, I hope people check it out. I want to back Mike up on this one. This was my second favorite indie of the year after cold iron and Eleven Eleven pushed this off my top list. Uh, it was my t- number 10 space for a while. Uh, it is beautiful. You really get into the journey. Controls like a dream. The puzzles are, v- I mean, not easy to solve, but very well designed within the world. And I can't say enough about how great this game's ending is. You were totally right to single out how amazing, oh, amazing. this game's final act is. Wow. And particularly the way that the game uses really subtle sound cues to tell a lot yeah. To, to just communicate a lot, like, like partly with that ending, but there are a couple other cases where like, you just, you just hear something and it just says so much more than dialogue would, I think. Oh no, absolutely. And it's really is one of those games where it, it 
makes me more aware since we started at Game Critics talking about how do things play for people who are hard of hearing. You really notice games like this where sound design is vitally important to the experience and people who don't hear the game are not going to have the same kind of experience with the game because there are no subtitling for the subtle moments that this game's sound design offers. That did occur to me and it is, it is kind of a shame, but you yeah, know. it's still a great game though. Oh, it's terrific. Would, would you say that 11, 11 made it your 11? Oh, Oh, wow. I mean it, it did, but wow. If only there was some kind of a sound effect to, uh, to hit that. But I know oh. Tim has a, he has a, he has a soundboard, doesn't he? There we go. Uh, There you go. That's my contribution to the comedy. Uh, With that, we are uh, 16 games down. We've got 16 to go. You will find out what occupies uh, the very tops of our lists when we come back from this short break. Stick with us. More Game Critics after this. Welcome back. Time now to continue our journey through our favorite games of 2018. I'm going to kick things off in this second segment with my number four pick for uh, Game of the Year, and that is Dead Cells. Uh, I was stunned to find I was the only one with Dead Cells on my list. Um, And I feel like there's been a little bit of Dead Cells backlash in the the game critics community. So I'll be interested to hear you guys chime in on it, but it has so many of the things that I feel like uh, we all love in games. We like Metroidvanias. We like roguelikes. uh, We love smooth, buttery, smooth gameplay. Certainly dead cells has that in spades. Uh, We like loot. We like upgrades, all the things we like in games that dead cells execute so well. Um, it, it 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 was just i was enamored with it there's a there's a period kind of in the middle of of dead cells where progress slows a bit to a crawl but i think once you get over that hump uh and you start accumulating power and you finally get that really really good run in uh there it really it just feels fabulous and you feel like you've really accomplished something so guys did you play dead cells and and am i missing something is this actually a terrible game um, I, I played it, and it, like it's it's very clearly a good game. Um, the problem that I had with it was I I mean I, I enjoyed it at first, but it really did feel like a grind after a while. Um, and part of it is the fact that it, it, you get that full reset, so you really are just playing the same stuff over and over again. Like you compare it to uh, something like Rogue Legacy, which is kind of structured in spokes. So like once you finish the boss of an area, you never have to go back to that area. And I just, I kind of felt like I was retreading a lot of the same territory, which, and I, I didn't actually wind up finishing the game. So I put in about two, two and a half hours. Uh, I, I really do enjoy the gameplay. I think it is like magnificently great gameplay, but I don't know. Uh, two things got me. One, uh, I found that first boss to be so unbelievably cheap. Uh, it took me forever to figure out the trick to beating him. And I'm like, after six losses to him, even when I finally beat him, I'm like, I just don't care anymore, guys. Yeah. It, he's so cheap. And you have to beat him on every single run, too. Like that, yeah, that, that's the where, like, if, 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 if the bosses stayed dead, that would have that been would be one thing. Yeah. Or if it was faster, like Spelunky, so you just j- zip through the thing if you want to. Uh, so that got me. And honestly, uh, this is going to sound weird, but I, I was kind of, I found the game too depressing to keep playing. 
It's a <laughs> yeah. very bleak world, that game. It is. I guess, like, I just, it's hard for me to want to keep spending time in that world. It's colorful, but it's really bleak. And it's not like there's some story or promise of a happy ending to come. It's just a very, very upsetting place to spend your time. And I guess I just, I wasn't in the headspace to enjoy it. I, I agree that it's technically brilliant, but between being super depressing and me hating that first boss fight, I did fall away from it. And I should get back to it at some point, but it's not making me want to. Yeah, and my understanding is the developers are revamping a significant portion of that game. I'm not sure in what capacity, but there's basically a 2.0 version coming in 2019 that's going to change the experience. So uh, maybe we're definitely show up for that. that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I've heard that they're. I've heard that they're adjusting the difficulty, so it may well be that my criticisms will eventually be nice. outdated. I, I, like, I, I would love to return and and get back into it because I mean, like the combat feels great. It's a beautiful game. It, it, it's a good game. It's just uh, it, it didn't blow me away like it did a lot of people this year. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Dan, let's move over to you and your number four game, and I'm going to let you pronounce this one because I don't want to mess it up. Uh, my number four game is Girls und Panzer Dream Tank Match. Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't do that. Yeah, that's totally fine. Uh, this one is kind of weird. Uh, I'm just going to tell the brief story because it's not like I reviewed this for the site or anything. Um, I was uh, I was on Play Asia. If people are not, I don't know if people are familiar with Play Asia, the place you get import games from Hong Kong, a very convenient place to get in, import game discs. So I was there to pre-order uh, Fist of the North Star because you know that's the thing I care most about in the world. And right on the front page is this giant ad for schoolgirls driving tanks, and I'm like, okay. Sure, schoolgirls driving tanks. Why are schoolgirls driving tanks? I don't know. I'm interested to find out. And sight unseen, knowing nothing about it, I decided to pick it up because I like tank games, especially arcadey tank games, which they don't so much make anymore. Like you don't get a lot of those these days, which I think is weird. Uh, so I love tank games, uh, you know, weird Japanese stuff about high school girls. And for some reason, even though it's not released in any Western country, the game was completely in English. So I thought, you know what? It's it's $50, let's take a risk. And I ad- ended up adoring this game. It is the best arcadey tank game experience I've ever had. It's just it's obviously made by people who have this deep and abiding love for the tank technology of World War II because it's set in a world where tank combat is a popular high school and college sport but only for girls. And it's there's a lot more to explain, but uh, I just want to say that gameplay alone, even if you don't get into the story, I ended up watching the cartoon it's based on, which is actually very good as well. Even if you don't get into the story, even if you don't care about the world, just the fact is, it's a really great action tank gameplay, and it is populated with super accurate depictions of the tanks of World War II. Like there's something along the lines of 60 tanks in the game and they're all perfectly modeled. So yeah, Girls in Panzer Dream Tank Match. It seems silly, but it's actually one of the best tank games I've ever played. Have you, you've, you have streamed this one? This is, oh, can my, we watch um, you playing this on the internet? So I started a channel called the Hidden Object Guru because I uh, I consider hidden objects to be fantastic and there I'm 
I think I think at this point the world's foremost expert on hidden object games. It sounds like a brag, but who would brag about that? It's just a fact. Uh, anyway, um, and it accidentally turned into a girls and Panzer channel because I more than quadrupled my audience because I was the only person in the English language playing girls and Panzer, which I found out after starting to play it that it's very popular. So yeah, if you want to drop by, if you want to find out more about girls and Panzer. Uh, drop by my channel, the Hidden Object Guru channel, and find the hundreds of videos about the game. Or drop by literally any Saturday afternoon where we have a weekly Girls and Panzer stream. It's it's great. I really encourage people to check it out. But you do have to import it or get a South Asian PlayStation Network account. That's the weird thing. It is not available in uh, the Japanese store only sells the Japanese version. So you have to get a South Asian account if you want to download the English version. And there is no word about whether it's going to come to Western markets, but if you only play games on switch, the special edition of it with all the DLC is coming to switch in April. So mm. if you want to play it on switch, you can play it on switch. Fabulous. Yeah. All right. Panzer. Good stuff. Thank you, Dan. Uh, before before we go back to Mike, uh, Felipe, can you can you uh, tickle the cat there? Thank you. All right, uh, Richard, we're going to give you one more uh-huh. shot at this. Uh, this trivia thing has not gone well for you. Uh, your reputation as a Star Trek Deep Space Nine fan is shattered. Uh, I hate to be blunt about it, but you clearly. Don't. I would like to. If it pleases the court, I would like to present that the second question actually had <laughs> nothing to do with it. <laughs> overruled. Uh, yeah, overruled. Yeah. So we um, we have crafted this question just for you, and uh, I hope that you can pull this off. Here is Here is your final Star Trek Deep Space Nine trivia question. What is the prominent attraction located near Deep Space Nine – Besides Bajor, and where does it lead? You mean tourist attraction or just attraction? It's an attraction near Deep the Space Nine. The reason people care about Deep Space Nine. Uh, that would be the wormhole going to the Gamma Quadrant. Very good. Very good. I think uh, you have now proven yourself a master of uh, the most basic Deep I, Space Nine information. I... I need I need something harder than that, Tim. I'm kind of disappointed. We already gave you something harder than that, Richard. It didn't go well. No, you yeah. gave me the first question that I got half of, and then the second question was not a Star Trek question. How many characters has uh, Jeffrey Combs played on Deep Space Nine? Uh, okay, so I have to count on my fingers now. Um, so, Wayun, Brunt, the random alien in the bar. Um, it's three... Are we counting the number of Wayunes no. or just like Wayun as only one entity? Uh, you only have to say one. Okay. Way. Okay. Um, I want to say three. I, I hate to do this to you, but it's but it's four. He was also in the flashback to the uh, pulp writers in the thirties. Oh episode. yeah, that's right. He was one of the cops. He was one of the that's right. Cops. Okay. Yeah, him and Gal yeah. were the corrupt okay. cops. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I really thought I did get them. You got hey, you got the random alien in the bar who wanted to buy. Yeah, a, I got a the pornographic. Most obscure one. Yeah, he wanted to buy a pornographic video of Kira. It was 
a very yeah. upsetting cameo. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, you know what? You got most of them. That's what counts. I do have one more question I could ask you, Richard. Okay. If you wanted away. to take a crack at it. And I, sure. If you get this, you'll restore my faith in, in both you and humanity. <laughs> uh, the USS Defiant was destroyed in the seventh season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh-huh. In the episode called The Dogs of War, Cisco was given command of another starship and was allowed to change its name to Defiant. What was the original name of this starship that would become the second Defiant? That would be the USS Sao Paulo. There you go. Boom. Well played. And I should say, not the second Defiant in all of Star Trek, but the second Defiant in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Because the Defiant was the the third. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Richard, uh, we're, we're going to hear from you in just a second to talk about your number three game. But before we do that, we're going to talk about Pinball with Mike Susky and his number four game, Yoku's Island Express. Hey, quick question, Tim. Is my number eight really high on somebody else's list? We're getting there. Okay, we're I was going to start because I, I thought we just skipped over that one. Yeah, no, right. No. Uh, y- Yoku's Island Express. Uh, this is... Um, a pinball Metroidvania starring a little dung beetle who's tied to a ball. And uh, you get around the titular island by uh, using these pinball flippers that are all over the place. Um, so here's why I like this game. I mean, first of all, I like Metroidvanias. And this is a very good Metroidvania. But I'm actually not a pinball fan by and large. I find it really stressful um, where things are just – I mean, I, I'm, I, know, I recognize that I'm bad at pinball, but it just – I think things happen too fast with too little control on my part. And what I love about Yoku's Island Express is that it is so relaxing. Um, It is a game that is almost entirely about exploration and you have to do some pretty ridiculous like pinball maneuvers in this game, but the penalty for screwing up is almost nothing. Um, So you get to, appreciate the mechanics of pinball without, without dealing with the stress that I've always had. Um, there's, there's basically no combat in the game. There are a couple of bosses that are, are very cool, but it is otherwise, um, just a game about, um, exploring this beautiful, delightful Island. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it, it's, it is basically what it sounds like, uh, from that description, but, um, you know, a, a, a pinball Metroidvania is one of those things that, kind of sounds ridiculous but then once you play it it's like how did nobody think of this before just just a just a terrific little game i bought this uh and on the same day as i bought another game that we're going to be talking about in a little bit and uh, i love pinball i I went to a pinball museum about four weeks ago uh and i grew up with pinball machines in my basement so anything anything related to pinball i am all over and i will eventually get to this game but i'm i was really pleased to see it so high on your list uh especially given you're not a pinball enthusiast and yet here's something that you uh embraced so i'm really really excited to get to it i just haven't uh had the opportunity yet yeah i mean the big reason i liked it was because it got me into something that i'd never really gotten into before so it's very clever in that sense very clever. 
Very nice. So, uh, Richard. Yes. Come back. It's time to talk about video games on our video game podcast. Oh, no more, no more kitties. No more kitties. Well, maybe the kitty will come back. We'll see. Uh, your number three game uh, is uh, one that takes place underwater, Subnautica. Yes, that's uh, that's correct. So this is a underwater survival crafting game, which uh, I I hate crafting <laughs> in video games. I can count on one finger the amount of times that I think crafting has actually added something to video games and lo and behold it is actually yeah it is actually this game oh um so the way I'm sorry okay um so this game you are uh part part of a crew on a spaceship that crash lands on this alien world that is mostly ocean um and you have to build various to scavenge and build various things to survive and you have to build various things like uh shelter water purifiers um all manner of things and the crafting is actually i think because it's the focus of the game it actually becomes very very interesting um it's just it's a very neat concept for a game uh it actually and the ocean physics actually look beautiful and alien things you would expect to find on a on an alien ocean so it's a it's a very interesting and and unique experience uh richard i've i've played a little bit of this and it's 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 a very good game i have one incidental and extremely petty complaint with it which is that i've been playing it in vr and one of the things about uh like vive in particular is that it it gets really hot really quickly and it's extremely punishing to get hot and play while you're playing a game that is set in the ocean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it makes you, it makes see, you, want you jump I, in the ocean. And see, I, I guess that's another good reason I can't do VR. So there you go. Mm. Um, thank you, Richard. And now we come I, there. So there's a proud tradition uh, on our game of the year shows is that eventually we come to a point where I start talking about games that make people embarrassed for me. And uh, we're now entering that part of the show. So brace yourselves and and get your cringe hats on. Um, but I, I am proud. I am very, very proud to say that I love Assassin's Creed. I love it. <laughs> It is my, I, I would argue, perhaps my favorite game series of all time. I find it to be the ultimate comfort food. I am never more relaxed than when I am walking up to someone for the 10,000th time and pressing the square button to stab them in the back. Um, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out this year. It is my number three pick. And I have to tell you why this game is so special to me. Um, and, and Richard knows this, and, and you guys may be aware, but I got married about a month ago. And uh, my my fiance at the time, uh, I, I was playing this game in front of her, and she became somewhat enamored by it and, and entranced by it. And when she would come over to my house, because uh, we're in two separate houses right now, 
she would say, hey, can you fire up the Greek lady? Which was <laughs> how she referred to Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And I would say, well, of course. And, and what better life situation for someone like me who loves Assassin's Creed Odyssey to be engaged and now married to somebody who wants to watch me play Assassin's Creed? It is the greatest life situation I could possibly imagine for myself. Um, I think this may be my new favorite Assassin's Creed. And I know a lot of people didn't care for this one. And think I think, Mike, you might be one of those guys. Um, and I think it depends on what you're coming to this game for. If you are coming to it to basically critical path your way to the end and, and absorb the story... Uh, this game will drive you nuts. It's impossible to do that because of the way the leveling system works. You will hit a point where you have no choice but to grind side missions to get your level high enough to proceed through the main story. Uh, and that could be very frustrating if you're looking to finish this game in under 40 hours. But for me uh, and my wife, who are now entering our, I'm going to say, 65th hour with this game, and is enjoying just sailing to a Greek isle and enjoying a little story vignette, a series of quests that, uh, you know, are just a, just a nice story. A beginning, a middle, and an end uh, where I can enjoy that great classic Assassin's Creed action. Uh, it's so intensely satisfying. I will tell you what happened. Uh, she loves this game so much that she asked me, she said, Tim, I would like to play an Assassin's Creed game of my own. What would you recommend? And and so she bought a copy of Syndicate. And so when we're at her house, she's playing Syndicate. When we're at my house, we're playing Odyssey. We're not done with either game yet. It could go three or four more months. Who knows? Um, but I find this to be the greatest possible life situation uh, I love her so much, and uh, more and more every day as we continue our Assassin's Creed journey together. So um, the only reason this isn't rated higher is because it, it is essentially the same game system as Assassin's Creed Origins. It's basically the same structure. Uh, and so for that reason, that, that slight lack of innovation... Uh, I, I've rated it at number three, but by far, this is the game that is most meaningful to me, uh, from a, a an emotional, uh, standpoint, uh, and a satisfaction standpoint, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, just the best, the best. Tim. Yes, sir. Tim. Can I, uh, so can I take you back a few seconds there? So the moment that, uh, your, your wife asked you, I would like to play Assassin's Creed. Which one should I play? I want you to give me, to the best of your ability, your word-for-word word and emotion-for-emotion emotion reaction. Well, I, I dropped to my knees and I wept. And as the tears pooled around my knees and ankles, I looked up at her and I said, Mon Dieu. And you would think in that moment, I would say, oh, we'll play Unity, because that's the game that took place in France. Uh, but no, Unity was not a good game. Uh, I said Syndicate, because it has uh, a female protagonist, just as Odyssey does. Uh, and it takes place uh, in uh, London, and, I, and she rides horses, and I could have sworn you got to ride horses uh, in Syndicate, but no, you... you 
uh, ride in carriages. You can't go on horseback. So I let her down in that regard. But um, yeah, I, I dropped to my knees, tears pooling around my, my legs, and I cried out, Mon Dieu. It's just a shame that you had already proposed to her. <laughs> that would have been the time to do it, right? We were already engaged, but uh, I, we, I could have done it again. It was perfect timing. We went on our honeymoon, and I brought my PlayStation 4 uh, with us, and I brought six or seven games. Uh, I, I brought Assassin's Creed, and I think I had uh, Burnout Paradise, and Black Ops 4, and... Uh, uh, a whole bunch of things that we were intending to play. The only thing we played the entire time was Odyssey. <laughs> and it was incredible. It was incredible. So there I you didn't go. Like, I, I didn't uh, dislike it, by the way. I just I, like uh, at any given time when I was playing that game, I was thinking to myself, uh, this is, you know, this looks great. It's the best the combat in the series has ever been. It's the best the stealth has ever been. And then I would open the map and zoom it out and think, Jesus Christ, I don't need that much of this. Right. Well, that's the thing, is it's almost as though they knew they weren't making an Assassin's Creed this year, so they made a game that would last you two years to complete. The notion that this game needs DLC is ridiculous, because, I mean, the amount of content in this game, I can't conceive of how many uh, labor violations were uh, committed in the creation of this game. It's It's... The size is obscene, absolutely obscene. But for for me and my wife, it's perfect. And and just to prove your point, um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but um, for the last few months, I've actually been on medical leave because I broke my spine. Oh, no. And Yeah, yeah. Well, I I actually bought this game the day that I did that because I needed something that I knew would kill time. And I did this three months ago, and I still have not finished it. (sighs) Wow. Are you going to be okay? You're going to be fine, right? Yeah, no, I'm fine. I do want to know. I just, I have a, I have a sort of manual labor intensive job. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm good. Okay. I can, I, I can play firewall, which is the important that's, thing. Yeah. No, that's the key element here. When we're thinking about your personal health, it's, can you still play firewall? <laughs> First thing we went to. Jesus. Feel better. <laughs> well, um, we're glad you're on the mend, Mike, and and thank you all for letting me ramble uh, incessantly about Assassin's Creed Odyssey. But, ramble um, romantically. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, Dan and Richard, the next game is on both uh-huh. of your lists. Goddamn Dan, right it is. Okay. It's your number eight. Richard, it's your number five. It is the fourth game in the Valkyria Chronicles series, and I'm going to let the two of you fight over who gets to talk about it first. Well, I, I'm not the one who missed 12 games in a row. <laughs> so Valkyria Chronicles. Um, so I played the original Valkyria Chronicles way back on, on PS3. I think that was 2010, if I'm remembering correctly. And, and so since then, the series has been taking a weird turn. Like it's, uh, the next two and three only came out on the PSP, which I do not own. I have no interest in owning one, or not the PSP, the uh, the PS Vita. Um, and I do not own one of those. I don't really have any interest in owning one of those. So I completely missed out on this series that I had started out a fan of and then just kind of forgot about until 
they announced that Valkyria Chronicles 4 was coming to the Switch. And I have a Switch. I like the Switch. I want to like Valkyria Chronicles again. I played this, and it's mostly the same. The menu system is not as awful as it was in the original game. Um, but everything else feels more or less like it did. Stories a little bit weaker. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's, you know, the kind of that same blend of real time, uh, combat and strategy that was really, really unique at that time. And it's feels just as good now as it did then. So good stuff. Um, okay. Um, for me, a very similar experience years and years and years ago, I was talking to somebody about how much I liked ring of red. I don't know if anybody's ever played that. Uh, it's a mech game. It's a real t- uh, no, a turn-based strategy mech game. But the weird part is, in addition to turn-based strategy, you actually aim your weapons manually whenever you shoot. And I'm like, that's a wonderful feature. Why didn't more games do that? And somebody says, oh, you should play Valkyria Chronicles because it has that exact same kind of system. And I did, and I loved it. And then just like Richard, the game just went away. Like they never released another one. And I'm like, am I ever going to get to see this thing again? Uh, and then I played Valkyria Revolution, which had a good story, but was not a great game. And it was a it was a full action version of it. And I wanted to like it more than I actually liked it. It was way too repetitive and so grindy. I mean, you literally had to play the same missions 20 or 30 times to grind your way until you were strong enough to do the next story mission. And I was playing on easy. Like, I don't know what their balance was with that game. It was terrible. Uh, so I was very happy that four was coming out and they said four was going back to one and I got it. And I don't actually agree with Richard that the story is weaker. I mean, I, I think that I would say that the characters, especially your main crew are better characters in the first one, but the story in this one, which is a really long metaphor about nuclear weapons, uh, I found very, very, very resonant. Like I really liked their take on the danger and the immorality of nuclear weapons and even nuclear weapons research. One of the characters is specifically haunted by their participation in the game version of the Manhattan project. I thought it was a very well done. I thought it really, it really resonated with me and I don't know if it's a better story overall, but I didn't really find it to be weak. Uh, So yeah, I I really recommend that. Wasn't the first game, and again, this was like nine years ago, so my memory might be a little fuzzy, but wasn't a main focus of the first game story a a metaphor for nuclear weapons Uh, as well? The Valkyrie in the the first one does factor in here because of the scientific research stuff. I think it's just, it's more explicit this time, and I think it hits harder this time. But you are right that those themes did Mm. come up in the first one as well. Okay. Very good. Valkyria Chronicles 4. And I should mention, folks, uh, we are now uh, in the home stretch. Uh, we are now, these are our nine point games. Now, the nine point, we have four nine point games. Valkyria Chronicles was the first. We're going to stick with Richard for the second. Uh, this is your number two game of the year West of Loathing. Okay, so West of Loathing is so funnily enough, I actually started playing this at the exact same spot. The so it's a Western themed uh, indie RPG, and 
funnily enough, I was playing this at the same time I was playing Red Dead Redemption 2. So some of the Western stuff kind of got confused in my head. Like I would associate some of the songs in West of Loathing with Red Dead Redemption 2. And then I always get disappointed when I loaded up Red Dead Redemption 2 and then that soundtrack wasn't playing. Um, so, but that, that's an extremely petty complaint. But uh, so, yeah, so several years ago, um, when we were talking about Tales from the Borderlands. Does anyone remember Tales from the Borderlands? Oh, very much Absolutely. so, yes. So we were talking about how it's very, very rare for a game that is attempting to be funny to be actually funny. Um, usually when games are funny, it's unintentional. Like, it's so bad, it's funny, or it's so dumb, it's funny. Um you know, something like a, a like Metal Gear style, incredibly serious conversations about silly things that just makes it hilarious, even though it's not really trying to be. Um, whereas this is, it's a game that it tries to be funny, and it actually stays funny consistently. It's it's not like haha, rolling on the floor, laughing funny, but it's like consistently witty writing over the course of this, you know, very simple and and charming RPG. Uh, that's, you know, it's a a decent chunk of time spent with it, but it also never really overstays its welcome. It's just a very well put together package. And most, uh, I find most indie RPGs kind of, I bounce off of after about an hour or two because their initial hook doesn't really pan out. Whereas in this one, it, it does. It's a, it's a really great game. I like how we were, we were going into this, uh, uh, sort of poking at Richard for how few games he played in 2018. And now, one of his games of the year came out in 2017. <laughs> did this come out? At, did I thought this came out this year? Did, did you play it on Switch? Yes, I did. Oh, okay, well, okay, I'll give it That's to you because the Switch port came on, out this year. It was on Steam. Oh, seriously? It didn't. It, it. I did. I didn't even know it came out last year, huh? I mean, Brad gave uh, Warframe his game of the year last year, so and that game is eight you years know. old. Play, yeah, play, play by your own rules, man. Well, it's not my game of the year game of the year that is still coming up much later and i put final fantasy 15 on my list so that's, that's true so yeah yeah it's all good we're much we're much looser in our in our old age at least one of me was good about this <laughs> <laughs> uh dan we're gonna come to you for your number two game of the year this of anything of everything on this list this is the game i want to play most but haven't gotten around to yet uh it's the sequel to a terrific game from a couple years ago it's hitman 2 yeah hitman 2 and i mean i don't care what happens in the rest of this show hitman 2 is i just think technically speaking the best game that came out this year i think it is just it is perfect uh it no, is uh, so you I'm haven't sorry. played astrobot though to be fair. i haven't played astrobot i'm not going to deny that but the point is um hitman 2 takes everything like hitman completely rebuilt the hitman experience and some might say perfected it a couple of years back and then this one refines that again to add in a giant host of quality of life stuff to essentially add in, instead of just hiding away these fun ways to play the level, the game teaches you how to play the fun ways to play the level with something called mission stories. So it'll guide you to where the fun stuff is. It'll show you how to play the fun stuff. And after you've done that a couple of times, you'll start saying, oh, okay, 
that's that's how I'm supposed to be playing the game. And you're going to start listening to it yourself. So it's still the most open-ended playground of murder you're ever going to find. But now it does hold your hand a little and say, you can have more fun than you're having. Like, this is a great stealth murder game, but it can be the most fun you're going to have with a stealth murder that has ever happened. And the game isn't strict at all about helping you do that. So yeah, I, I loved a, a big thing I've said this year is one of the standout things is long running series becoming more player accessible. And this is the best example of that. Like Hitman's always been here. It's a 15 year old series or 16 year old series at this point, but this is the one that has the potential to break through and make everybody say, yeah, no, this is, this is the Hitman of my dreams, especially because they have retrofitted 2015's Hitman to make sure that it is compliant with all of this game's uh, advances. And if you don't have 2015's Hitman, they sell you a tiny bit of DLC to get all of those games levels in this one too. Oh, and just aside from all that, it has a really good story. It has, like it has a really good spy story, even with all of this amazing open world gameplay. So Great story, fantastic gameplay. And again, it's one of those things like Earth Defense Force where it kind of has a genre all to itself, which is crazy because it's not that hard to rip off. So yeah, Hitman 2, just a masterpiece all around. And kind of a miracle that this game exists at all, given all of the studio drama behind the scenes. I couldn't believe, like, first off, the the last one was hurt. If I think that thing would have sold gangbusters had they just sold the game. But the whole idea that you had to like buy spend ten dollars to buy a level and then wait two months and spend ten dollars to buy another level and then wait two months. Oh, and there's a bunch of and if you didn't invest and get the season pass right away, they don't give you a bunch of the content. Like it was just so disastrously packaged that it actively you know convinced people not to buy it. And I was so happy when this one fixed it all. And they're like, no, we made a game. We're putting out a game. This isn't a live service. This isn't a subscription thing. It's not a TV show. Just buy the game and play the game. And I don't think enough people did, but hopefully they will over the next year or so. It uh, it it was discounted very, very quickly, oh, I noticed. And so I hope people sad, picked but... it up. I hope people took advantage of that and got it into their homes because well, uh, you definitely should. Yeah, you absolutely should. You're going to love it. Well, uh, in I um, for my number two, uh, which is tied with Dan's number two and Richard's number two, uh, and Mike, we'll get to your number two at some point here soon. Uh, it's God of War. And I know you're again. You're cringing because oh, here's Tim picking one of the one of the big shiny AAA games as his uh, second favorite game of the year. I I don't know that God of War is the best at anything. Uh, it might be the best at taking ideas from other games and uh, squishing them all together into its into its own thing. Um, but in terms of just raw production values, and I love when games look amazing and I love when they sound amazing. And we are in, especially this year between uh, Assassin's Creed and Hitman and all these amazing looking games. Uh, God of War is the best looking of, of all these games. I think um, just triple a excess 
is something that I, I guess I appreciate here. Um, this game reminded me a great deal of the 2013 Tomb Raider, which was my favorite game of that year. And something about that game really clicked for me. And God of War uh, just feels, just structurally and, and even a bit in the combat, feels a great deal like that game. Um, the things that were heavily promoted about God of War, you know, the fact that it all takes place in a single take, eh, fine, doesn't really add much to the game. It's 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 a neat trick, but it didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't something that was hugely exciting for me. Uh, the dad-son drama, I think, is pretty contrived. Uh, there are only so many times that Kratos could reach for his son's back and then not touch it uh, before it becomes very <laughs> redundant. Um, but I will say uh, that there, the moment, uh, roughly, I don't know, a third, maybe halfway through the game, where Kratos goes and gets the thing, uh, I loved it. I, as... as, as uh, I, I guess predictable as that moment was, I was so excited when he went and got the thing and then you got to, to screw around with the thing. I don't want to spoil it, but um, and maybe I just did. I, uh, I would love to spoil it because everybody was giving me shit about, cause I didn't mention that they were saying I didn't finish the game, but go ahead. Well, no, I mean, it's, why it, would you mention it? It's an incredible moment. It's, it's handled so beautifully because until that point you think, well, gosh, is this a, is this the? Is oh, I don't want to spoil it, but is this the same Kratos? Is this a reboot? What's what's going on here? And then and then it all becomes crystal clear, uh, and that moment is handled so beautifully, and uh, and then all, and then adds I, I think a great deal uh, of complexity and, and nuance to the to the combat uh, going forward. And I've completely spoiled it at this point, but nevertheless, um, I I was just just enraptured by this game from start to finish uh again not because it it does it brings a, a lot of original ideas to the table it just expertly applies other games ideas into this experience and um i was just i was just really i, I just didn't want it to end as as long as this game was and it's a very very long game for for uh you know a character action game uh, I just didn't want it to end. And, and when it did, I was, I was incredibly satisfied. Um, the other thing I'll mention about this game is I, you, you have a head attached to your belt, uh, throughout the game and the head is a wise cracking. Um, I swear, uh, the entire time I'm playing that game that, um, and now I'm blanking on his name. Uh, uh Sean of the dead, Scotty from the Star Trek, reboot what's Simon his name Peg. Simon thank Peg. you I swear to god the entire time I'm playing that game I said oh they got Simon Pegg to voice the head because it sounds just like Simon Pegg and then it turns out no it's not Simon Pegg at all uh and I thought that was that was fascinating wasn't that an interesting anecdote so there you go God of War my second uh favorite game of the year I, I you know I'm, I'm... I'm kind of surprised you picked it, not because I like famously wasn't that crazy about it, as we know, because we had to actually shut down the comments uh, because people were so pissed at me. But I, I could have sworn that you, Tim, got in touch with me and Brad while you were playing that, and you were like, I don't really see what's so great about this. Didn't you? I did. I did. Um, and it was, I, I think I was commenting specifically about the story. 
the father son stuff wasn't working for me at all. Uh, and I don't believe I had gotten to the point where he goes and gets the thing. When I, I remember, I remember sending those messages very clearly. Um, I have to go back and look at them, but, um, it, it won me over. What can I say? It won me over. But it's funny because that, 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 the moment that you're talking about was actually my least favorite part of the game, but I can't say why, cause <laughs> such a, such a, it's a giant spoiler. Really spoiler. Yeah. I really don't think it is. Like I wasn't even that surprised. It's a pretty big spoiler. Come on. Shocking. I don't even I don't even care. All right. <laughs> I, I haven't even played this game. I can Well, um, you were preserving stuff for you, believe me. Thing is. Preserving stuff for the two people, Richard and the one other guy who hasn't played it yet. <laughs> so, uh all right. Enough enough rambling from me again. Uh now now we're getting into some interesting stuff because uh we have three games tied here with 10 points. Uh and this next game uh appears on two lists. It is Richard's number 4 game of the year. It is Mike's number 8 game of wow. the year. It took us Ooh, a while to play that. Uh but Richard and Mike both played Gris, Gree, Gree, Gris. I thought it was Gris. 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 I have no idea. It's not important. <laughs> That's the least important thing about this conversation. Um, so, Mike, we haven't heard from you in a little while. Tell us, uh, tell us why Gris placed number eight on your list. Oh boy, because you know I. Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad someone else played this because this is a very. Uh, this just came out. Uh, in December, so it's um, a very recent game, very late entry uh, after a very stacked period of releases. Um, I played this, uh, and my first thought was, I'm so glad I didn't agree to review this because it is very difficult to describe. Um, everyone who praises this game is going to talk about how beautiful it is. It is one of the best looking games I've ever seen. And a lot of people who are kind of skeptical of uh, artsy fartsy indie games are saying, is that all there is to the game? And here's the thing in a weird way. Yes. Like it's um, this game doesn't really have much of a story as far as I could tell, unless there was some sort of subtext that I was missing. It's basically just about this girl who loses her voice and goes to restore colors to her world. And that's basically it. Um, There's not really much of like a, a single persistent, interesting mechanic uh, that ties everything together. It really is just about the, not just the audio visual presentation, but the way it kind of makes you feel and uh, has an effect on the way the game plays. And uh, I guess the best way I could describe it is um, like I said, you're, you're this world that you're in is initially just basically just black and white. And you're kind of restoring one color at a time. And each time you restore a color, it's sort of, as this new sort of a vague element, like a sort of a vague property to the world and makes it feel gradually more thriving and gives it more dimension. Like if, when you restore red, um, that sort of introduces a lot of like peril into the world. Um, when you introduce green, suddenly there's a lot of uh, life springing up and stuff. And it's, it's, it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe without sounding pretentious, but um it has these really profoundly beautiful moments um, and and 
when I say it's, I don't, I don't think it's a particularly deep sort of, um, uh, beautiful, but it's, it's, you know, sometimes, I mean, you, you know, if you go to an art museum, some stuff you can really pick apart and, uh, you know, you know, you know, you know, come up with your own meaning for it, but some stuff is just nice to absorb and take in. And I think, I think Gris is just, it's, it's one of the most purely artistic games to come out this year. And it's just, it's just fantastic. Yeah, it, it's a very and you hit it there at the end. It's a very artistic game, and I think that's a very distinct. I think that's a very distinct term from artsy fartsy. It's not artsy fartsy. It's artistic. Um, it playing this game feels like you're playing a painting, and so the actual mechanics of it are: it's a very very simple platformer. Um, you get a few abilities, like you know, she can turn herself into a brick and you know do some some physics puzzles with that, and then so on and so forth. So it's got some real basic platforming mechanics to it, and but it doesn't feel overly simple. Like that's what kind of made it stick out for me is like usually a game like this is going to be overly simple. You'll maybe run back and forth through this gorgeous level, but then something about I I don't know it, it you, like you said it is difficult to describe, but it's a very artistic platformer, I think is the best way I can describe it. The last 20 minutes in particular, I thought were just staggeringly beautiful. And the way it kind of brings all of the elements that they've introduced uh, together in a climactic way that isn't about action. Like it's actually, it's, it's kind of a quiet moment, but it's just, it's just uh, this beautiful moment of discovery that uh, Mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I found mesmerizing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a very beautiful game in every sense of of that word. Gris, you know, you talk about quiet moments of discovery. Um, Richard, your number one game. When I think of quiet, when I think of tranquility, when I think of being at peace, I think of your number one game. And that's where we're at now. Please reveal the identity of your best game of 2018. So I need to preface this just a little bit, and I promise not to waste too much time, but uh, this was a year that I discovered that after having played so much of the soul series, that my brain has been kind of rewired uh, when it comes to combat in games, like there are certain things that I used to dislike that I now find that I can actually appreciate. So for example, I went, and this is absolutely not my number one game, by the way, but uh, I went back and played uh, some of the old Devil May Cry games, which are games that I did not like when I was in high school when these came out. But now it, it's like the combo system and, and chaining attacks and the style meter, like it, it's kind of clicking for me now, which is really, really strange because those are games I would think I appreciate less with age, but I'm starting to appreciate them more. Um, So jumping off of that, I have never liked fighting games outside of Smash Brothers, uh, like I said before. Uh, Specifically, the inputs for something like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat have always turned me off. I've never had the uh, dexterity and quickness to be able to do those in a consistent fashion to play those games effectively. But Dragon Ball Fighter Z 
the inputs are just the right level of complexity between Smash and most most uh, quote unquote normal fighting games. Uh, they are just easy to learn and hard to master in Spart uh, in in terms of its controls. And uh, aesthetically, you know, like like most people, I watched a lot of Dragon Ball in high school. It is the most gloriously dumb thing you will ever watch, but I sure watched a lot of it. And I saw this game and it's one of those games that you watch people play it and you instantly want to do the things that are happening on the screen. You don't care what kind of game it is. It's just like, I want to, I want to do that. I want to push buttons and do those things. And sure enough, it's very easy to just pick up a controller, push buttons and well, not just push buttons, but push a very small amount of buttons and just do those things. It just, it plays great. It looks fantastic. It's very accessible. And to my great surprise, I absolutely loved it. Richard, I had the pleasure of having you at my uh, wedding, and you strangely uh, invited me back to your hotel room to play Dragon Ball mm-hmm. Fighters uh, or Fighter Z, however we're going to pronounce it. Uh, and I said to myself, "Well, gee, that's that's odd because you, you know I have some other things going on here uh, at the wedding." Uh, but I, I would like to play this game with you at some point and, and hopefully we'll get together here and, and you can tutor me in the ways of, of Dragon Ball because I, this is a world that I have no familiarity with whatsoever. But if, if you like it, surely, surely I can like it. I don't know that that's necessarily true, <laughs> but I, I, I will try as hard as I can. <laughs> so the funny thing is like, I remember that exact conversation and remember i let it off is that uh we were talking at your wedding and you mentioned that you just had not played very many games this year and it so happens that i had my switch with me and i had a total of 10 games with me and i was like let's go back to my hotel room and play those 10 games and you can just rank them (laughs) and there's your top 10 list and one of those games was dragon ball fighter z and no surprise, I saw a glint in your eye when you mentioned Dragon Ball, so I knew it was going to be pretty high on the list. So no no surprise here. No surprise here. Well, uh, congratulations. And Richard, we're not done with you. Uh, you've got two more games to talk about, and, and we'll get there. But first, we are going to stop by Mr. Dan Weisenberger, who is going to share with us his number one game of the year. And uh, I've been looking forward to this explanation for quite some time it is not a difficult explanation uh so famously i love the yakuza games i feel like i've been talking about that somewhere recently how good those yakuza games are and uh two years ago no, a year and a half ago i found out that the yakuza games uh the yakuza dev- uh, developers yakuza team we're going to Yakuza Studio, sorry. We're going to be working on Fist of the North Star. And I thought to myself, the minute I heard that, there has never been a better pairing of studio and property in the history of video game development than Yakuza Team and than the Yakuza Team and Fist of the North Star. Because fundamentally, these are two franchises about the same thing, which is um that to put it mildly, you know, to put it as non-confrontationally as possible, how hard it is to figure out what it is to be a man in a fallen and corrupt world. Like these are both 
centrally stories about figuring out what is masculinity in the real world. Because everywhere you look is cor- like you want to be honorable. You, you want to be honorable. You want to stand for something, but the entire world around you is corrupt. So do you give in to that? Do you hold on to it? Is it is there any reason to hold on to it when everything around you is corrupt? It's about standing up for some principle when everything else has fallen. And again, fundamentally, it's uh, it's a game about absent fathers too. And that's the central themes of all of these stories, right? All of the Yakuza games, and especially Fist of the North Star, fit those to a T. And so even before you get into the unbelievably great gameplay of this thing and the fact that, again, it's about touching people on the head and then they explode. I mean, come on. What's what's going to be better than that? Uh, like even before you get to the gameplay mechanics, just fundamentally, it's one of the best pairings I've ever seen. Like because this is a beautiful series. This is like a great series of stories, right? And it's treated in with the utmost respect by the Yakuza people. But at the same time, uh, it they add just enough humor to pierce some of its self-seriousness in a way that ends up making the whole experience deeper. Because there is no property more humorless than Fist of the North Star. Like, if there, there's actually a scene in the, the... The series is so humorless that there's actually a scene in Fist of the North Star where someone tells a joke once and another character's reaction is, I don't understand what you're doing. Like, I don't, what, why did you say that sentence that is nonsense? I don't, I don't get it. They don't understand the concept of humor in the world of Fist of the North Star. But of course, the Yakuza series is very funny a lot of the time. So they managed to inject that kind of humor and humanity into what was a completely, you know, serious project, uh, product until then, elevating Fist of the North Star. Like, so Fist of the North Star was already great, but the changes they have made to the story actually elevate it and impress me more than what the original creators of Fist of the North Star do. And I hope that they continue making games in the series because they have a chance to do better than the original version. And how many game adaptations can you say that about? Like, how many times can you look at a game adaptation of a book, of a movie, of a TV show, and say, or even of a board game, and say, this video game is the definitive version of this property. Well, Fist in the North Star Lost Paradise seems to point that if they continue working on this, the Yakuza Studios games are going to be the definitive version of Fist of the North Star. Holy moly. I um, know. Also, you touch people and their heads explode. So there's that. <laughs> Everything else aside... All of the story elements, whatever, you touch them on that, boom, they explode. Boom. I love it. It's it's gorgeous. Do these games do, I mean, is this is this doing well? This is a real niche title. I it mean, is. I don't think it's doing great in North America, but it's sold like gangbusters in Japan. And, I, and I'm sure it sold well enough here to justify the cost of releasing it. So there's a good chance that if they do make another one in Japan, we'll see it here as well. Superb. And for the record, people who hate subtitles, they actually went to the expense of recording an entire English soundtrack 
for this game for the first time in the Yakuza series since the the first one. They've actually done a full English soundtrack. You have access to both on the disc or download. So you can choose which one you want. And I will say this, I played the game both in Japanese and with the English voices. And you know what? They did great. Like they actually did a really good job of casting and production of the English voices. It's not a hack job at all. Terrific. Outstanding. Fist of the North Star, Dan Weisenberger's number one game, game of, of the, the year. year. Dan, you're not done though. Oh no, you're not I'm not. done Because your number three game is also Richard's number seven game. Wow. And that is Vampire. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, Richard, I'm going to let you start with Vampire. And uh, Dan, you jump in at your leisure. Uh, so we actually recorded a another podcast about this. Uh, I don't even... It was like five months ago or something. Possibly even longer than that. And I did not care for this game at first. Um, and the reasons I, the reasons I don't care for that game, will I didn't care for this game. We'll get to in a second, but um, this game reminds me so, so much of the old Witcher games that were incredibly ambitious, but execution wise were just horribly, horribly flawed, had some maddening, just almost un unforgivable problems with them like I, I and i'm also like i'm somewhat picky about uh getting around the world or getting around maps and traversing them i famously bailed on witcher one because it wouldn't let me jump over a fence <laughs> and in vampire you so in vampire you're a vampire and uh you have to navigate this world of uh world war one era London and figure out why you were made a vampire and so on and so forth. And you get this teleport ability that lets you, you know, jump up tall buildings and get over obstacles that you almost never get to use. You almost never actually get to use this thing. It's very, very strict on when you can actually uh, teleport up to a ledge or over a fence or, you know, through a door. There are certain fences that you can teleport, teleport over some you cannot. And I just, it drives me absolutely insane. There is also the combat system in this game, which is trying to emulate Bloodborne, and I don't think it does a very good job of that. Like, I think if you're going to emulate that type of combat, you really need to make it the focus of the game so you can make it as, as solid as it can possibly be. But they released a story, a, a lower difficulty mode called Story Mode a few months ago, and much like the Witcher games, that allows me to just ignore the game's single biggest problem and just turn the difficulty down, and you can just mash your way through pretty much all of the the combat encounters. So I am, and now that I'm able to play the game and experience the the world and the story without you know really being encumbered by bad soul style combat, I actually really appreciate it. Um, uh, Dan bet me that this game would win me over eventually and he won i will send you whatever it is we bet upon i don't even remember but um it's got a ton of problems it is it's still extremely glitchy uh for one thing so you'll love this so in the early in the game after i started over i was in the middle of a fight and uh what was the name of the big gray guy's name i forgot oh fergal fergus fergal Fergal bansha Fergal. Yeah. 
so the cutscene where he is introduced, I was in the middle of the fight with some of those lesser skulls, vampires yeah. in in the like yeah, skulls in mid combat, the cutscene that introduces him starts. It just happens. And then after the cutscene is over, I am warped to an entirely different portion of the map. So I don't know how on earth I hit that cutscene trigger, <laughs> but I did. And it put me somewhere that I didn't need like the map icons didn't update, so I had no idea where I was. I had to restart the game to get the the, the mission indicators to tell me where to wow. go. So, yeah. So this game is it's still and it the, is jacked you were playing up. that on PC, right? Okay, yes. Yeah. I just want to remind everybody that the PS4 version is infinitely more stable. Yeah, yeah. That's that's also what I hear. But yeah, this is if you. If you were one of the people that actually enjoyed the first Witcher game and like that was your thing, then this is very much up your alley. Um, for me, this it's not as bad as it was, you know, at that time. At least since they uh, added the story mode where I could actually, you know, play it. But yeah, it's very ambitious. Got a lot of issues, but still ultimately enjoyable. Okay, um, just I I'm not gonna go for ages. You can just go listen to our podcast about this. We talked about it at length. <laughs> um, I'm just gonna say Richard is wrong about everything. And uh, <laughs> no, um, what I said earlier in the show was that my theme this year was games becoming more accessible like being able to just anybody pick up and play them in long-running franchises and this isn't a long-running franchise but i really believe that someone looked at bloodborne and said wow what if what if this combat was way more accessible and what if it had a story that you know you didn't have to read every single item description in the game to under even understand what was going on it's it's got a a really great story told in a wonderful fashion. The combat is very accessible. Like I, I really, especially now that the story mode is in there. But I didn't have a lot of problems with the basic version. There is a huge problem in the game that if you make the wrong build of vampire early on, it can seem like the combat is terrible. But really, that build is just bad for low level characters. Now the game has a free character respec. But you have to, it's very easy, and this happened to Richard, to think that the game's combat is bad and not just some character builds are broken. And that, that, is, and that is why I would encourage you to listen to the podcast where we tell you how to start your game. And it actually, it's very similar to uh, Demon Souls way back when, where it was possible you to... You have a completely that broken of- build right from the start. Yeah, that style of game was completely new, and then people are like, well, I'm just going to build a tank character and tank everything, when that's literally impossible. And, yeah. And that's exactly the same here, because they say, oh, well, and the the real problem is, as the game is starting, when it first has you build a character, the first thing it says is, hey, maybe try unlocking this skill, and the skill is a close combat skill, and that is the worst skill to start the game with. Yeah. Yep, that's what and I did. What uh, it tells you to unlock the. It tells you to unlock and level up the claws, and I use the claws, and I'm like, oh, he's doing a decent amount of damage. I'll level them up, and it's like, no, these are they worthless. are completely worthless, and it's and it's the game's fault for using that as an example of what to buy in the first place. But if you know what you're doing, uh, you know, once you get a little into it, it really is a magnificent experience. I loved it. It's one of my favorite games of this year, and I think the best example of someone saying. 
uh, that Bloodborne was great, but what if it was playable? And I stand by that assessment. Also, another thing that uh, sours me on Vampire's combat system is the fact that they just take normal enemies, give them health bars, and call them bosses. <laughs> Like I hate that. There are, no, see, yeah. I hated it when blood. Yeah, no, but I mean that that happens a couple of times. But there are actual bosses in this game with unique skills. Like you, you make it sound like that's all they do. There are actually plenty of unique bosses in this game. But you're right. There is a number of times where there's just a regular enemy, and then he's got a health bar and way too much health. That that is true. But there are a mm-hmm. bunch of unique bosses in this like, game. Like I didn't li- I didn't like the chalice dungeons before. I don't like them <laughs> okay. now. If we were to take all the arguments made on this episode and rank them from strongest to weakest, somewhere at the bottom of the list is this will appeal to people who like The Witcher 1. <laughs> I know, right? Why do you think I have to start my part with he's wrong about everything? It's a great game. That is- so way, way back when, when I reviewed Witcher 1, I got roughly the same amount of, of hate comments that you did for God of War because people are like, no, nah, man, this game is too, it's so ambitious. You just don't get it. I'm like, no, no, it's just not good. It's just technology does not allow them to make the game that they want to make. Eventually, and they sure do, enough, yeah. 10 years later, Witcher 3 came out and they actually made the game they want to make. Yeah, I do wonder if people still defend that game now that they have actually done the thing that they were trying to do. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us, gentlemen, to our final three games of the night. These are all games that appeared on more than one list, so that should make this very interesting. Uh, Wait, are, are, they, are they my top three? What's that? that? Just occurred to me. Are, are they my top three? Your top three, sir. Uh, so we're getting a lot of Mike Susky Ooh. in the next few minutes. I feel um, like a proud father. You are. You gave birth to each of these games. Uh, the number three game with 13 points, it's Mike's number three. Uh, it's Richard's number six, and it is a game that opened to spectacular reviews that now everybody hates. Uh, it's Red Dead Redemption 2, and uh, Mike, we haven't heard from you in a while. Why don't you kick things off? Yeah, I, um, I'm i not going to say I'm surprised that a lot of people uh, disliked this game um, because uh, as is very well known now, it has an extremely slow pace uh, that not everyone's going to gel with. Um, but the thing is, I think it's kind of the best application of what Rockstar does well. And I, I think I stand very much in the minority here because I am actually I wasn't a fan of the last couple Rockstar games like um, GTA Five. I I didn't think it was very good because they seem to be moving in a more serious. Um, story-focused direction away from just the mindless mayhem uh, that defines the earlier Grand Theft Auto games, basically, like, you know, define sandbox games in general, I think. And, you know, in GTA, the characters just don't have any character growth. Like, they're just satirical idiots. And I, I like, I you know, whenever they would, like, devote an entire uh, mission to nothing but character development that just didn't work. It, it didn't really work for me. So the fact that they actually made a really serious game that tells a very good story and has maybe my favorite cast of characters in any video game. Like I, I think it's really in the conversation um, is uh, very impressive to me. Um, so 
one of the things that I, I really like about this game as a sandbox game is that something that people always bring up when they talk about open world games is how they kind of clash with linear stories where people always say, well, you know, if there's this really urgent objective, like you got to save the world, why am I just wandering around doing random stuff? And something I actually really think a way that I think Rockstar makes it work with this game is because it's a prequel and because we have a pretty good idea of where this is all going to end up. Um, there's really no, there's not a lot of urgency. Like you, you kind of, it doesn't feel like they're kind of dangling a carrot in front of you. Uh, you know, you know, like, like we're, we're, we're really just, just busting to see where this goes. It, it kind of enjoys a more relaxed pace with a lot of individual character moments. It, it just kind of allows you to live in that world. And since this is a famously detailed world, uh, with ridiculous production values, um, a huge cast of characters, a lot of unique dialogue and just, tons of stuff to do. The fact that you can actually, you have the leeway to just sort of disappear into that world, um, I think is what makes it a very strong sandbox game and, and a really good use of Rockstar's talents. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of people said that it was really slow and hard to get into. I will say, um, and Brad can back me up on this cause um, we got a review copy for it. I played through this game in like four or five days and it was not even a struggle. Like I was totally engrossed. Um, it has again, really strong character beats. Um, I think there are a couple of segments of the game that I would cut. Like I'm kind of in the minority here, but I don't think the epilogue worked. And I think that the game reaches a very natural cl- conclusion beforehand, but then kind of focuses a little too hard on tying everything back to the first red dead redemption. But on the whole, like I, I, I just thought it was was a, a very engrossing, very mature game um, that I loved, and I stand by that. So what's interesting is that well, there's there's two interesting things. The first is that everything Mike said uh, about Red Dead Redemption Two can be applied pretty much word for word to the first game as well. Like the first game. Um, I remembered being thinking, you know, this is the best application of Rockstar's engine and technology and talents that I've ever seen. Like this is this is fantastic. And the second is as as I was playing this, I was surprised at how vividly I remembered the first game because the first game is almost ten years old now. It came out in two thousand eleven. Two thousand ten. Um two thousand ten. Okay, so it's even older than I thought. So and I was really, really surprised at how closely i remembered like you know the story beats and the things that you know ultimately do happen with dutch and john and 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 all of those people and it's very seamless prequel it's not just a prequel but it fight it works those uh the elements from the first game in really really well i think like there's no like big reveal it's like oh my god it's john morrison it's just like almost at the very beginning of the game it's like oh hey john Looks like you got eaten by a bear or something. Let's get you back to camp and heal you up. So, and it's, they also, um, and I think this was really, really important that they did do this because I remember things so vividly is that they got the same voice actors to voice almost all of the characters from, uh, the same characters from the first game. So John, Dutch, Bill, and I think Abigail are all voiced by the same people they were before. And it, I remember those voices too. So it's really, really impressive to me the way that uh, they were able to 
work it in so seamlessly and so so prominently while also making it completely work for someone who didn't play the first game. So uh, everything Mike said is accurate. Um, I didn't hate the epilogue as, as much as he did. I thought it was, it was fine. I, I wouldn't say uh, I hate but the epilogue. Else, I just thought it was unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think it was needed, but I mean, I thought it was, it was, it, it worked. But, That's what I can most say. Most people agree with you. I was, I was surprised. Like I, I thought that was going to be a, a common complaint. It wasn't. I'm, I'm the outlier there. Yeah, yeah. So, but no, it's it's solid. Um, I'm pretty sure countless labor violations went into the production of this game. Um, but yeah, it's it's a great product. And it, it it's funny when I think back on these two games, um, like like they they play in chronological order in my mind. Like it it feels like it retroactively feels like this is the first game in the series and Red Dead Redemption 1 is Red Dead Redemption 2. Like that's how well it works as a prequel and how seamlessly it's integrated. Like, like I uh-huh. actually, I didn't, I don't know if I'll ever like replay the first Red Dead Redemption cause it's, it's a big game, but I actually, after I played this, I watched one of those YouTube videos where they compile all the cutscenes into like a two hour movie, quote unquote. And it's amazing how well it, it fits together. Like things that, uh, were referenced in that game come up in this game and not in a fan servicey way. It just feels very organic. It's so do you want to know? So there's a really natural moment that uh, happens pretty close to the beginning. It's when you first set up your, your camp and you're walk- I'm walking around the camp trying to you know talk to people and get missions. And then all of a sudden uh, Jack walks up to me and you know he's little, little boy Jack, and you know he sits down. And at first, I didn't I didn't realize who he was. It just said Jack, and I was like, oh, I wonder who this is. And he looks up and he says hi to me. And then it kind of dawned on me, and I remember like you know what he becomes later on and what happens to him. And I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, it, it, <laughs> so I would actually like, go so far as to say that this game kind of recontextualizes the ending of the first game without giving anything away. I the ending of the first game was always kind of like, um, like kind of a fist pumping moment for me. And now it's like, Oh, that actually kind of sucks. That's actually kind of tragic <laughs> that it winds up like that. Yeah. 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 The whole story of, of the, the Dutch gang is all pretty, pretty tragic. Even though most of them are bad people, it's still pretty tragic. Well, they, well, they, they, they sell the idea and this is always something, you know, like um, in rockstar games, you can always be this like mass murdering, asshole and they they try to kind of balance that with still making them relatable characters and they do kind of i think they sell the idea that this is just the only lifestyle that these guys know like like Mm -hmm. like they really like they they just don't know what else to do and the only the only thing i the only other thing i'll say was um you said that a lot of what i said applies to the first red dead redemption i actually that game has the one issue that I, that I mentioned for, for me, it has the one issue that I mentioned, which is that uh, John has this really urgent mission. He's trying to hunt down these guys and save his family. Um, and that I thought that kind of clashed with like, the, like they obviously wanted you to explore that world, but it kind of had that urgency. Whereas this game doesn't really have a central objective. And I help I thought that really just helped the pacing of what they were trying to do. Okay. Well, in the, in the first game, remember he still has to, um, and it works kind of the same way in Witcher 3 as well, where it's like he's got a central objective that is very urgent, but in order to do that objective, he still needs to do like random odd jobs and sustain himself and uh, do do those sorts of things. Because in, in the first game, he is 
he's hunting for Dutch ultimately. I mean, first he's chasing Bill and then he's chasing Javier and then he's chasing Dutch and he has to, you know, get resources and do work to, in order to find these people. Yeah. Yeah. Red Dead Redemption 2. I the, the I loved Red Dead Redemption, the original one. I suspect it doesn't hold up very well given advances in open world uh, mechanics and technology and just advancements in design. Uh, but the notion of starting RDR2, uh, which is the cool abbreviation for it that a lot of people are using, uh, it's so daunting. It's just, especially coming off of Odyssey, uh, which for me and my wife, there's no end in sight. Uh, I just don't know that I will ever make the commitment to play this game. Uh, so the one thing that I will say is that, um, so you, it, it is, you are right in that the game will introduce a lot of different things to you. Like the game has a full built in like dominoes game. Um, so my advice would be just ignore that stuff. Like if you don't want to play dominoes, just don't play dominoes. If you don't want to play poker, just don't play poker and just ignore it. What if all I want to do is play dominoes? Then I really don't know what to tell you. Well, then the game why are you, you, play, why are you playing a perfect a game? I don't know. It's clear. Find <laughs> another domino playing out there. There isn't one. This is the game for why, you. Why are you playing why are you playing a Rockstar game if you want to play Dominoes instead? It seems kind of counterproductive. Maybe there's a VR Dominoes game. We can look into that. Um, we are now to our number... Uh, well, this game accumulated 15 points. Uh, it's our second-to-last game. It is Mike's number two game of the year. It is my number five game of the year. And it is called Into the Breach. And Mike, I'm going to turn Aww. it right back over to you. Talk to me uh, about Into well, the Breach. I'm going to talk to you about Into the Breach because we were uh, when we were talking about Dead Souls. I didn't mention this, but um, one of the other one of the things I that one of the reasons I wasn't blown away by Dead Cells was because even though it was a well made game, um, the roguelike scene is so overpopulated with 2D action platformers. There are so many of those, and you know, I, I I I play Dead Cells and then I compare it to something like Into the Breach, which is just so unique to me. Um, and it's just it's really no comparison. I've I've never really even even though it looks kind of familiar, I don't think I've ever played anything quite like Into the Breach. Now, first of all, it's made by the same guys who did FTL, um, which I I think was possibly the best roguelike ever ever made until this game came out. Um and they've actually, I think, managed to top themselves. They've made this uh, 2D tactical game where the gimmick is uh, because you're repeatedly going back in time and trying to save the world from giant bugs, you always know what the enemy is going to do one move in advance. And first of all, that sounds like it's going to make the game too easy because it's not. You have extremely limited resources. You only have, uh, a th- you only have three units at any given time. Um, so you have to use everything that you have. And secondly, like as a roguelike where you can very easily sometimes, um, wipe out all of your progress very, very rapidly. The fact that you have all the information that you ever need really makes it feel like your losses are entirely your fault. Like, I I don't know if there was ever a time in this game where I took a bad loss and didn't think, 
yeah, I should have seen that coming. Uh, and, and I mean, also like some of the, like, like it's, it's kind of unique as a tactics game because you're not actually trying to defeat all of the enemies or even stay alive. You're trying to protect the city. So you have to do things like sometimes just redirect attacks. Uh, sometimes you take damage yourself to avoid, uh, damaging the city. And, um, it's just one of the most satisfying gameplay loops uh, I've I've seen in any game in recent memory, much less a game that you're supposed to be playing over and over again, um, where the levels are um, procedurally generated. Um, there's a great variety in the different squads. Like every one of them has like a different gimmick that kind of teaches you new things and you, you learn new lessons that you can bring into each run. And um, it's also, you know, whereas I was talking about how Dead Cells, it, it, it getting to the end kind of felt exhausting after a while. The great thing about uh, into the breaches, you can beat it in only a few hours because you only have to clear two of the four islands if you want to. You can bump down the difficulty if you want to. Um, you kind of set your own goalpost. And, you know, I, I played this game early in the year, and my usual strategy for playing games is I will get to the credits and then move on to, a ne- to the next thing. And I initially did that with Into the Breach, um, and I... I I obviously recognized that it was a great game, but I didn't quite get everything out of it because that opening squad is kind of generic and you, you don't, you don't really grasp the full picture. It was when they re-released it on switch. And I thought, you know, I think I'll double dip into this. Um, I, I got so absorbed into it. It's so um, well balanced and deep and unique. And I mean, I, I did literally everything there was to do in that game. I got every achievement. The only reason I stopped playing was because I, I, I had nothing new to see. Otherwise, I, I would have kept playing. Just a just a fantastic little game. I love their previous effort, FTL. The problem with FTL is I will maintain the final boss fight in those runs is wildly unfair. And oh yeah, that that is that is a good point. <laughs> and and so you always you would have this great run. Uh, and there were there were random elements in FTL, uh, and then you would get to the end, and you would feel like, well, gosh, I played this as well as I could possibly have played it, given what transpired. And then you get to the end, and you're just annihilated, and you would feel terrible terrible about it. Um, and and the idea here uh, that you have all of this information at your fingertips, it's very much it feels like chess in that regard, uh, in that you're just you will sit there for. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, uh, plotting out all of the various scenarios. And when you get it, there's nothing more satisfying. And when you miss it, uh, you have no one to be angry at other than yourself. And you just kick yourself in the head and and you say, oh man, how did I miss that that guy was going to knock that unit into that building? How on earth did I miss it? It's right there on the screen. Uh, I had all the information I needed. Um, the game has such a good look. It has such great music. Uh, the, the idea that I can carry one of my units over into the into the following run and, and continue building them up, uh, I think is is a terrific uh, roguelike element that makes it feel as though you're not wasting your time if a run doesn't go well. Um, 
it, I, I played it exclusively on PC. I should get it for Switch. I'm kind of waiting for an iPad version because I feel like, uh, like FTL, the iPad version could be the best version of this game. Uh, I'm sure they're in development on it. Uh, I, I just I can't say enough good things about it. And it kind of makes me feel like I don't want to play another tactics game with random elements. I'm glad I finished XCOM 2 last year, for example, because I don't I, I don't know that I can go back to having a 90% chance to hit and then having it miss. Uh, I don't know that I want to go back to that kind of world again, because uh, this was so satisfying and so perfect. So Into the Breach, a terrific game. Just an absolutely terrific game. Well, Mike, that brings us to your number one, and also my number one. It's a 20-point game, and I think we foreshadowed it very well. Uh, In fact, I think we spoiled this uh, minutes into the podcast tonight. Uh, Your favorite game of 2018 my favorite game of 2018, and GameCritics.com's favorite game of 2018 is Astrobot Rescue Mission for the PlayStation VR. Uh, an absolute delight uh, with boundless joy. Please, Mike, I want to hear you talk about this game uh, because I know you loved it as much as I did. So, um, like I said, this was the year that I got into VR. Um, I uh, bought a Vive first much earlier in the year because I didn't envision myself being in a situation where I would buy more than one VR headset. Um, so I figured I might as well shell out for the most expensive one. Now, um, because VR is such a niche market, um, I think a lot of people think that there aren't many VR games. And um, Dan, I know you can back me up on this when I say, especially if you are on Steam, there's a ton of VR games. It's just that they're mostly extremely low budget projects by uh, teams with very limited resources. Oftentimes that have very cool ideas, very uh, forward thinking ideas that apply VR in cool ways, um, but kind of lacking the resources to fully back it up. That is a definite, you're right. That is a definite problem. Absolutely. And um, I I mean, I I played a lot of cool stuff where I was just thinking to myself, you know, imagine if you had this really cool idea, but with a AAA budget. And and one of the reasons I actually eventually shelled out uh, for a PSVR is because really the only company these days that is investing in VR and actually has a AAA budget behind them is Sony. Like they've, I think they've done a terrific job of, of, selling P- I mean they're, they're kind of taking the Nintendo approach which is the the affordable accessible you know not necessarily the high end but they're just they're, they're they're trying to sell VR as this new thing that people are maybe not totally convinced of and they're they're selling it at a lower price and they're um pushing out this just this really polished stuff and right at the top of that list is Astrobot um on one hand, this, so this is a 3D platformer that you, uh, where you are sort of a separate entity than the character that you are controlling. Um, this game, I think, has the polish and the charm of a Nintendo game. People people compare games to Nintendo games when they say this is this is cute and adorable and pure and innocent. They don't make a ton of games like these anymore, but I think in a way this is 
sort of better than a Nintendo game because if this was the same thing, but it was a Mario game, it would still be brilliant, but it would just be the slightest bit less exciting because we're so familiar with Mario. I love Mario games, but we've seen that world before. And so this is the excitement of a new IP on top of everything that this game does to showcase VR. Um, I feel like every single level of this game was just full of new surprises. Um, it's not really one specific thing. Like there's no one central uh, gimmick that ties it all together. It is just this constantly surprising parade of little experiments uh, some of them are innovative. Some of them are just cute and funny. Some of them are the same. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Some of them are are both. Um, God, I was just I I played through this game and I I just had a, a big grin on my face the whole time. It's so uh, cute. It's 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 a very uh, like adorable game, and it's not a game that like secretly has like a lot of toilet humor or anything. It really is as sweet and innocent as it looks. Um, it plays beautifully. Um, just, I mean, it, it, it is, I think one of the absolute best cases for VR as a major technical leap. I, I would say maybe the biggest innovation in gaming since the move to 3d. I mean, I, like, like I said, I got into VR this year. It was all new to me. And so I had a lot of really unforgettable experiences. This is right at the top of the list. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that lends to, its success is that the gameplay isn't really that complex at all. It's it's a 3D platformer, as you said. Uh, you can jump, you can hover, you can punch, and that's basically it. So the you know there aren't any RPG elements. There aren't uh, really any. I mean, there are boss fights, but they're they're fun. They're not like super challenging or, or difficult or taxing. So the game is kind of free to experiment with um, perspective and environmental challenges, and uh, kind of all right. I'm gonna. I, I need to move the astrobot uh, above me. So I need to look all the way up and, oh yeah, he's on this, you know, there's a beam that I can walk him, uh, walk him across. And um, there was actually a preview of this game on one of the early PlayStation demo discs. I think the playroom demo disc. Yeah. Cool playroom. Yeah. Had, had, and, and I remember at the time playing that and thinking I would play an entire game of this. Uh, I, I would just th- this this is what all 3D platformers should be, uh, and and just that by that one demo, and then sure enough, two years later, out of nowhere, they've they've done it and they've made a whole game out of it. Um, I found myself uh, reluctantly moving, uh, reluctantly playing this game, and what I mean by that is I didn't want it to end. So I would I would kind of treasure each level and and ration it out over the course of uh, many weeks because it's not a long game. There's only it's like 25 levels and the levels are not particularly long. I didn't want it to end. I just wanted it to keep going. Um, I didn't either. I was I was so like I mean I have a platinum trophy in this game and it's just heartbreaking that I have no more of this to experience for the first time. Yeah. And so I've been I've been putting my kids in VR and I'm like, listen, you're going to play this and you're going to experience boundless joy and and so be it. And <laughs> and finally, I found something that that they like that I like and and we're we're in alignment on. So uh, they love the game too. 
I, uh, you know, the, the only other PSVR game, well, there are a lot of PSVR games I haven't gotten to this year, um, but I'm curious, Mike or Dan, did either of you play Moss? Because my, yes. under- my understanding yes, Moss is Moss is, is similarly fantastic. Um, and I'm looking forward to playing that one as, as well, but I, there was a, there was a bundle, uh, at Christmas and I, am sure you can still get it with PSVR, Astrobot and Moss. And I said to myself, my God, if there's, if, if there are two games better suited to sell this technology to people, uh, what a no brainer. I mean, that's a phenomenal, uh, bundle and a phenomenal value, um, Astrobot just yeah, Moss is actually yeah, Moss is actually pretty similar to Astrobot in that it's I mean it's it's kind of a platformer and um it, it's in a similar way um you kind of play a separate character from the protagonist and you interact with them in extremely cute ways uh, and also like use motion controls to sort of manipulate the world and solve puzzles um. And and they're both very they're similarly cute games. Like you can like in in Moss you can like high five the mouse, which is great. And then like in Astrobot you always have these cases where like you know Astrobot will like get stuck to your visor in an underwater level or just like turn and wave to you for no reason other than because it's cute. Yeah, they're really. I mean, I I, I had a few issues with Moss. Like the combat was kind of annoying to me, but so I I think I think Astrobot is like a, a far superior game, but they are both very good. Astrobot also the only game that could make the Carlton dance still charming. <laughs> uh, I, I love those, I love those dorky little dancing Astrobots. <laughs> so congr- uh, congratulations, Astrobot Rescue Mission, our uh, 2018 GameCritics.com game of the year. I'm going to run down our top 11 here one more time. Uh, 11 because we have some some ties here. So Valkyria Chronicles 4, West of Loathing, Hitman 2, God of War, Gris, Dragon Ball Fighter Z, Fighters, Fist of the North Star, Vampire, Red Dead 2, Into the Breach, and Astrobot. Uh, guys, that's a heck of a list of 11 fantastic games for people to check out. And really all 32 of the games we talked about tonight, um, I would recommend wholeheartedly. Um, any, any final thoughts as we wrap things up here tonight uh, related to our, our game selection? Uh, for, for Astrobot, is there a non VR version of that? Well, two questions. Is there a non VR version and two, is it worth playing? No. And no. Because because the answer to the first question is no. No, but I mean, it is VR is integral to the experience. Yeah, it is. It is okay. like yeah, specifically built for VR. So yeah, I just i i can't do i can't wear a VR headset for more than like five or ten minutes without getting a headache. So actually, you know what's funny was we we met. I told you that I uh, broke my spine. This was actually incidentally, even though this was my favorite game of the year. Um, this was the one game where that was a problem because it hurts whenever I like have to crane around and you have to actually like constantly be turning and looking behind you in this game Ooh, yeah. so you can get a full view of the world. So it that was, it was bad. actually a very painful game to play, but worth it. Worth <laughs> unbearable suffering. Worth <laughs> all of the neck injuries. That's, that's a pull quote for the box. Mm. Hmm. Mm-mm-mm. Uh, I'd other... like to say that I yeah. had there's 
plenty of great games I uh, played this year. There's something that didn't make my top 10, but I wanted to give a special shout out to and remind everyone to play it. If they haven't yet. That's The Missing, J.J. McField in the Island of Memories. A beautiful, in many ways important, like creative puzzle platformer from Swery who made uh, Game Critic's favorite Deadly Premonition. It's his best game since Deadly Premonition, and I would advise everyone to check it out. I just started playing that. Um, don't freak out. It's my first sweary game. And Freaking I'm going to be honest. I wasn't prepared. <laughs> Nothing can. Nothing uh, can prepare you for your first swearing game. That's just the way it works. It's, it's, it's surreal. It is. So uh, we, di- we didn't get to do the steaming pile or, or anything of, of that note because the show is, you know, the show is positive. It's a celebration. But uh, if we were doing a steaming pile, Fallout 76, and I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Did, did you play that, Richard? I did not play it, but my God, what just a, a wrong-headed bad-from-conception idea that was. Uh, okay, well, uh, as somebody who did play it, it deserves all of the scorn that it got a, a game so bad that even, I mean like that whole, that whole thing with the nylon bag was just hilarious. Uh, a, a game that's a game series famous for having the most beloved single player RPGs in recent memory. Let's do a terrible, always online multiplayer game. Just brilliant work with Bravo. Let's, let's center a game around gunfights in the Skyrim engine. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's 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 make a game where the only interesting things that happen supposedly are interactions with other players, and then make the world four times the size of Fallout Four supposedly, and only put twenty four players in a server. <laughs> Let's make nuclear explosions completely trivial in this universe that has been reshaped by nuclear explosions. You know, uh, uh, funny story about that, actually. Um, There was actually, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was apparently some guy who took it upon himself to be like an NPC in the game. The the raid boss? Yeah, yeah. He he, he set himself up as as a a big like endgame raid boss and he got a bunch of his friends to like play bodyguards and everything. And he, he was, he was, he was, you're supposed to be like, I'm, I'm the content and uh, other players just nuked him. Oh, <laughs> you're the worst Bethesda. The, you're the worst. Well, guys, uh, before we go tonight, I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to dedicate the show to somebody who, uh, a, a good friend that we lost this year, uh, Michael Mack, Cunningham, who appeared on this show uh, a number of times and uh, in the face of impossible odds was a uh, bastion of positivity and good humor, and we should all be so strong in that situation. So uh, wanted to dedicate the show tonight to Mac and uh, just say how much we miss him and uh, what, a, what an incredible uh, person he was, and we are all better for having known him. Absolutely. Yeah, Mac was Mac was a really wonderful guy uh, in general, and also, uh, as far as I am concerned, he was the linchpin of the most fun I have ever had on this show, which was on the the 2015 Game of the Year episode. Which, if you remember, that was the zany three way tie between Witcher Three, 
Bloodborne and Metal Gear Solid Five. I so I invited him on the show and I completely ambushed him with this. He had no idea that he was going to have to break that tie, and he he performed brilliantly. It turned it, out it great. was the it and, was uh, the he, best he, ending of an episode we've ever had. It was the best ending of an and episode. It was all down to him he will, and his he brilliant be, performance. And he absolutely, and he absolutely. will be missed. So, guys, that's uh, that's our show. So I want to congratulate all our games, uh, especially Astrobot, uh, the universally recognized GameCritics.com Game of the Year. Let's go around the horn here for some good nights. Uh, Richard Nyack, where can people catch up with you online if they want to stalk you or keep up with what you're doing? Uh, I have completely withdrawn from most social medias, so the answer is nowhere. There is nowhere you can do that. There's nowhere legally you can do that, I should say. And Richard, if uh, any listeners have questions about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, can you recommend anyone that they could ask? Jesus. (laughs) That's that's mean. So terrible. That's that's a very mean thing to say. It's 2.19 a.m. I I don't know what more you could expect from me. I, 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 well, I, it's exactly what I expect who would ask a quote unquote Star Trek question, which is instead All a right, fresh right. literature question. <laughs> Mike Susky, where can people keep up with you online? Uh, well, on this website and also at, um, my, my Twitter handle is, uh, uh, you might need to write this down. It's, uh, at Mike Susky. Mm. Too complicated. Too complicated. And Dan Weisenberger, what about you? Oh my God, so much stuff. Um, GC underscore Danny on Twitter. Reviews on uh, GameCritics.com. Lots and lots of streaming and video content at the Hidden Object Guru YouTube channel. Uh, I recently started my own YouTube review site. Uh, Totally objective video game reviews. Uh, The first completely objective video game review service where I tell you who developed a game when it came out, how much it costs, and how much space it takes in your hard drive. And that's it. 100% objective reviews. There is no opinion here. Just that. <laughs> uh, uh, um, I, and that's what the people have been, been clamoring for, for about two, two decades I'm now. This is what the, I'm, I am answering their demands. Uh, but anyway, uh, check out Profiling Criminal Minds, my Criminal Minds podcast, because uh, I love Criminal Minds. And also hate Criminal Minds, so it's complicated. And of course... Uh, two movies I wrote came out this year. Uh, one of them is Our House, a horror movie you can check out on demand in various places. The other one is The Sweetheart or Sweetheart Con, depending where you live, which is on Netflix right now. That's a lot of things you've got going on in your world, Dan. When do you sleep? Any, if anything, too many. <laughs> I'm never. I take Christmas off, and that's the only day I take off. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, uh, gentlemen, that's it. So I want to thank Richard Nyack. I want to thank Mike Susky. I want to thank Dan Weisenberger, the entire GameCritics.com family, my producer, Felipe. Uh, My name is Tim Spaeth. Hopefully, and I know I said this last year, but hopefully we don't go another year before we speak again. So uh, let's do it again soon. And until then, good night and bon chance. Do you hear that dramatic piano music? It's probably not the most rousing yes, I do. good night music. <laughs> <laughs>
but it's the only thing I have left on the soundboard. Is this still? Oh yes. Is this is still this, part of the show? Oh, okay. Is this from something? I'm guessing or is it, just it is public piano domain piano music that we are ending the show with. Best kind of piano music. Tim is messing with all of you. I'm actually playing this live. And on my piano. It's interesting because it's not coming through on your sound. Now we fade to black. These are the days of our lives.